When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, today we're debating Destiny's morality and we're starting right now. With an introduction of our speakers, we're thrilled to have them and want to let you know, folks, both Destiny and Brenton are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more, you absolutely can hear more from them. And with that, I want to say just quick hello, Destiny. Glad to have you back. Hey, glad to be here again. And... Brenton, glad to have you back as well. And also, folks, want to let you know, Brenton has a special link in the description. Want to give him a chance to share about that before we get started. Thanks so much, Brenton, for being back with us. The floor is all yours. Absolutely. Um, yeah, very excited to be doing this. Um, very excited to be um, locking horns with Destiny. He's someone that I've been very heavily influenced by. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, anyway, for those of you who don't know me, I am an anarchist political commentator and author of Snow White Zombie Apocalypse, a uh, Ringo-nominated comic series. And uh, today it's a little different because a good friend of mine and a brilliant writer, his sister, who is younger than me, uh, was fired from her job, unfortunately, due to a what later turned out to be a heart condition, and she needs bypass surgery. And due to being fired for that heart condition, uh, she uh, is she does not have any insurance. And so they're trying to raise $75,000 to help pay for the procedure. So if anybody can, please click on the link, give whatever, even $1 will help with the algorithm and help them hit that goal and uh, make sure that she can get her surgery. Because, you know, honestly, that's a horrifying situation for anyone to be in. So yeah, thank you very much. And please do check that out. Absolutely. And those links are in the description at the very top of the description, folks. So highly encourage you to check those links out in the description box. And with that, we're going to get started with Destiny's opening statement on his morality. So, Stephen, the floor is all yours. Okay, so I have like some very basic stuff written down. Um, and then this is, I imagine, what we'll be uh, going over it. So this is kind of like the foundational uh, ethics that I use that I kind of build all of my policy positions out of and that I build all of my um, applied ethics positions out of. Um, so I broke this into two parts. The first part, I don't imagine we'll talk about much, but just epistemically, I would like to say that like the laws of thought exist. So for instance, I'm going to assert without proof that we believe in things like non-contradiction or we believe that non-contradiction can happen. We believe in the law of the excluded middle. We believe in the law of identity, stuff like that. Um, and then for two and three, I'm going to say that like zeroth order and first order logic exist. So like if P then Q, um, you know, a is not, not a, like stuff like this. I, I, I hope that we can just instantly move past that. I don't imagine that we'll get bogged down there, but just in case there's uh, some ultimate skepticism lurking, uh, that's just, just very basic epistemic side stuff. Okay. Um, okay. And then moving past that. So the way that I kind of look at my moral stuff is 
um, I've branched this out into three sections um, with one and two being incredibly similar. So number one, <clears throat> so the first premise is I exist. Second premise is I have an experience. Third premise is I wanna maximize my experience. And then I'll repeat the same three axioms for other people. Other people exist, other people have an experience, other people wanna maximize their experience. And then the third part is I believe one, humans synergize to create a better experience. Two, if I help others maximize their experience, they will help me. And three, assuming we all share moral systems, we will all synergize with each other. So that's essentially kind of like the foundation that I build all of my policy positions and my applied ethics positions out of. Okay. And that's it. Thanks so much. We'll kick it right on over to Brenton. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, I want to really thank Destiny for this. It's, you know, this is a, inherently a... Uh, difficult position to be in because you're defending not an idea, but you, you know, your own ideas that you've put out. Um, and so, you know, I just want to recognize that before we go into it. Um, you may find that there are some slightly different phrasing, and this is because I based it on a, my criticism on a video that Destiny put out about six months ago. So if there's something that doesn't make sense, check out that video, because um, I do reference it directly. So to begin, in the beginning was the word, or was it? Now, you may think it quite odd that I, a practicing Buddhist, am beginning a debate with, uh, about morality with a Bible quote, specifically John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and it shone in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. And yes, I will admit that upon first inspection, this might seem particularly strange, especially considering the morality in question, which is to say the specific moral system that we are discussing tonight is one that has been professed by my esteemed interlocutor, a man who regards himself as an agnostic atheist. But bear with me, because it will all make sense in the end. The thing is, most philosophical questions and discussions, if they go on long enough, ultimately become about God and the popular understanding of Christianity, being one of the foundational political and philosophical pillars of the Western world, has woven itself so thoroughly into the fabric of our increasingly secular society that its remnants are quite often impossible to dislodge. In short, if we take it as a given that indeed God is dead, we must also admit that the world we currently inhabit rests upon a scaffold constructed of his bones. Unless you think I'm being too presumptuous in drawing connections with this particular metaphor, let me remind the audience that Mr. Bonnell, known to many by the pen name Destiny, has himself actually acknowledged this to be the case when he stated on this subject what I call internal happiness, or maximized experience, which is the basis of his moral system, I think they call religion. Now, before we go any further, I want to make something abundantly and overwhelmingly clear. My criticisms of Destiny's professed moral systems are not criticisms of Destiny himself. And if you come away from this debate finding them adequate, it does not in any way suggest any such particular and notable moral deficiencies in Destiny as a person. Morality is an exceptionally tricky subject that, is reliably confound, that has reliably confounded the greatest minds humanity has ever produced for the entirety of our species' existence on this planet and will likely continue to do so far into the future. Barring certain supernatural assumptions, in all of human history, there has never been a perfectly moral individual, nor a perfect moral system, nor any kind of perfection whatsoever which is to say that nothing within reality exists independent of its opposite. Everything that exists both in the objective material world and the subjective reality of the mind is inherently limited and contains within itself its own negation. And to quote a popular stereotype of an aged Presbyterian minister, tis vanity to think otherwise. The fact is man is mortal, fallible, human. 
And as such, everything that man creates also bears the mark of his creation and thus carries within itself that same human fallibility. So it is no particular failing on destiny's part if he is found to have spoken in error. And of course, the same holds true for myself. In a certain sense, we're all just hairless apes filled to the brim with a series of intense and often conflicting needs, drives, and desires who are nonetheless stumbling through an infinitely complicated and seemingly indifferent world for 90 or so years at a time, desperately clutching in the darkness for some kind of stability. As such, the correct response when one of us makes a mistake is almost always compassion. Ultimately, we're all just doing our best, and it is a fact of life that often the handhold that seemed so solid just a moment ago will crumble in our grasp. The dialogue which we are now engaged in is simply one more in a long line of moral, ethical, and philosophical disagreements reaching back, no doubt, to before recorded history. And in fact, I will come to argue that what we are doing here today, from a certain point of view, is the act of morality itself. So, to begin, I have three primary objections to the moral system as it was proposed by destiny. The first is a statement that if something is not consistent, it is meaningless. Consistency is something that we should strive for when constructing any worldview. However, this admirable instinct is philosophically treacherous to say the least, as the goal that destiny has assigned for himself is ultimately a, Sisyph a Sisyphusian task. Anytime you try to roll the boulder of perfect consistency up the hill of reality, you may get very far, but you will inevitably hit a contradiction and that boulder will roll back down and the whole process will start over again. For proof, one only need to look to the logician and philosopher uh, Kurt Gödel's two incompleteness theorems, which proved mathematically that all axiomatic systems are either incomplete or inconsistent, which means that if we are to take destiny at his word, math itself is meaningless. We also see this reflected in Bertrand Russell's objection to set theory when he proved it impossible to create a logical set containing all truths due to the fact that such a set must necessarily both contain and not contain itself, thus rendering set theory once again meaningless under the strict interpretation proposed by my interlocutor. Even the physical laws of science that govern our natural world are not wholly consistent. The ideal gas law, for instance, breaks down at high pressures and low temperatures, but this contradiction does not render the ideal gas law meaningless. As such, I would remind Destiny that should is an extremely dangerous word. Contradictions are important and can point to serious flaws in any methodological framework, but their presence alone does not render that framework meaningless any more than the presence of hypocrisy renders a particular statement false. If a doctor tells you smoking causes lung cancer, you need to stop, and then later you find out that said doctor is a smoker, well, that doesn't make the statement untrue. You should still stop, and it still does cause lung cancer. Secondly, I reject the idea that any moral system can be based wholly or even primarily on what Stephen calls internal happiness or maximized experience. On its face, it sounds reasonable. One wishes to be happy, and therefore one should advance an ethic centered around the fulfillment of this desire. And to Destiny's credit, he has avoided most, if not all, of the usual stumbling blocks that the more naive and myopic egoists usually fall into. But there is a fundamental problem when it comes to centering oneself as the primary beneficiary and source of ethics and morality, and this can easily be discovered if we examine uh, even enlightened selfishness. If you hold that the primary thing that you love is yourself, and really dive into it with the full power of your imagination, you will quickly discover that everything that you love is in fact not yourself at all. If you love yourself and therefore devote yourself to fulfilling all of your needs and desires, then what you are really loving is that which is external to you, or rather that which is external when it is added to yourself. 
An egoist who loves themselves and thus drinks only the best and most flavorful wine to their palate truly loves not themselves, but the wine. Or more correctly, they love the combination of the wine and themselves. When the egoist engages in a passionate love affair with one or more extremely attractive individuals, yet again, it is not themselves that they, that they love, nor even necessarily the individuals. It is both together. It is the combination. Now, to be certain that I do not strawman destiny, his brand of enlightened egoism to a certain extent makes gestures in this direction, but there is still a huge gaping flaw. And namely, it is when he supposes that individuals who do not share his goals of maximizing his individual happiness and the happiness of others must necessarily be excised from his system, either via banishment, imprisonment, or death. Why? Because a necessary part of internal happiness is the presence of one's enemies. Now take a second with that, because that's not how most people usually think about their enemies, and it's not how we're used to approaching personal and social discord, along with all the unfortunate things which can befall an individual. But don't reject it out of hand. Think it through. Because the only reason we know that we exist, that we can identify where we end and another begins, is when we meet resistance. The principle is expressed in many subtle ways, and it is why in the martial arts, many advanced practitioners argue that, in fact, it is the, an act of ultimate kindness for someone to agree to strike you and be struck by you. Because when we are hit with any kind of force, the accompanying shock makes you feel alive in a way that few other experiences can deliver. The point is that one only knows the limits of one's body by, experience, by the experience of coming into contact with that which is not their body which is to say resistance, resistance to our ideas, resistance to our will, and the seeming resistance to our own happiness and well-being. In a way, that's what love is. Someone who is not beholden to your will, agreeing to forego that most of the time. And of course, as a lover, we respond in kind, offering both uh, acceptance and resistance. In essence, we only know pleasure because we know pain. And thus, to attempt to excise obstacles and enemies from our conscious experience is in reality an attempt to have a wave without the trough. It is an attempt to play chess without an opponent, to knock all the black pieces off the board before beginning the game in order to enjoy a permanent victory for white. This, of course, is not only impossible, but is ironically inadvisable, as I'm sure Destiny, as a consummate gamer, understands uh, just how unfulfilling it can be to play a game that's too easy or to continue playing a game once victory is assured. In short, we must admit that enemies, misfortune, and discord are as much a part of our overall happiness as harmony, fortune, and friends. And thus we cannot commit to a system that eliminates any of them, at least not entirely, at least if we expect that system to make us happy or maximize our experience, which is, as I have explained, something of a fool's errand anyway. Chasing desire is fundamentally flawed for this and many other reasons, not the least of which is because that frame causes you to evaluate others and your own external environment either as solely an, imp an impediment or a means to an end, when in fact it is neither. It is instead simply another expression of you, and as much as back is an expression of front, and the south pole of a magnet is an expression of the north. And to attempt to excise it is like fleeing your own shadow. I mean, you can do it but you're not gonna get anywhere and you might even hurt yourself. Finally, I take issue with the fundamental assumption that a moral system, any moral system, functions as a mechanism into which we can feed data and by so doing come to a perfect or nearly perfect moral conclusion. In fact, when we look at how morality operates in the real world, I don't think we can necessarily, con necessarily conclude that morality even is a system in the strictest sense of the word. And this brings me back, well, 
to the Word. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is one of the most well-known, pivotal, and influential statements in all of the English language. And sadly, it is also something of a mistranslation or perhaps not to put it so strongly, an unfortunate way of phrasing the idea, which has caused untold confusion for centuries. The word in this sense is logos from the Greek and has been translated in much the same way as I have previously stated in nearly every edition of the Bible. That is, with the exception of one, Erasmus of Rotterdam, whose 15th century translation of the book of John roughly begins suchly. It all arose out of a conversation, a conversation within God, and in fact, the conversation was God. So God started the discussion, and everything came out of this, and nothing happened without consultation. This was the life, life that was the light of men, shining in the darkness, a darkness which neither understood nor quenched its creativity. Now, do you see the difference there? And do you understand why I told you that all serious philosophical and moral debates ultimately become a conversation about God? Suddenly, we in the West are not subject to the word, something complete, immutable, unchanging, given from on high. We are the conversation, which means our relationship to the divine is participatory. And to rephrase this, our relationship to each other uh, and to reality itself is also participatory. This has a number of incredible implications, not the least of which is that morality is not a matter of finding the proper system and comporting ourselves to it, just like life is not a matter of finding the proper God and bending ourselves to his will, but rather, we're it. We are God. We are morality. We are life itself. We are the universe experiencing itself as an individual. Morality is something that we do. Which, we can best, which can be best understood in terms of aesthetics. Morality is a dance, it is a song, and the point of it is not to achieve some specific material end. The point of the dance is the dancing, as, just as the point of the song is the singing. There are certain rules and themes and recurring motifs, but to look at morality for these things or for its supposed outcome is to attempt to make the tail wag the dog and to miss the forest for the trees. In short, we are doing morality right now because it all arose of a conversation. And thus, I am very excited to continue this one. Thank you. Gotcha. And thank you very much, Brendan, for that opening statement. We will now be going into the open discussion section. Want to let you know, though, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. We hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you're from. And last, you guys at the bottom right of your screen, we are going to have an epic debate next Tuesday with Jangles and T-Jump as they are debating the super straight debate and so that should be a lot of fun hit that subscribe button and that notification bell so you don't miss that one live thanks so much everybody and gentlemen the floor is all yours for that open dialogue um well do you want to start right at point number one <laughs> sure we can we can start at point um you know i i think i probably threw a lot at you so is there anything that you want to latch onto right there? Let's just go in order. We can start right at point number one, I believe, was um, you challenged, I think you challenged me on an epistemic level, um, almost the idea that we shouldn't strive for a contradiction in any particular theory, or that we shouldn't um, strive will, to avoid contradiction in any particular theory or framework. Uh, I would disagree. I think we should strive for it. I just don't think it's a possible goal. Like, it, essentially, 
the we should always strive to eliminate as many contradictions as possible, but I don't think it's possible to eliminate all of the contradictions, and I don't think the presence of a contradiction necessarily makes what we have done up until that point, um, you know, worthless or completely unreliable. So what would your argument be against something incredibly basic like the principle of explosion? How would you argue against something like this? Uh, the principle of explosion. Uh, Meaning that like, so I think that most people who understand formal logic would say that if you have any contradiction, then from any contradiction in a system, we can prove anything. Um, I would say on a certain level um, that works. Um, but I think like, I mean, Isaac Asimov, like you can prove anything with logic. You just have to pick your postulates. I'm not throwing logic out. It's just logic is a... Uh, something invented by humans to accomplish specific goals, and eventually it will break down at the highest levels. Okay, so I'm going to try. Okay, so I ever say anything that's unclear, you can stop me immediately. I'm trying mm -hmm. to be very clear with every single thing I say. So sure. my assertion is that if we accept contradiction, we have essentially abandoned all, all logical statements. I don't think we can ever do that. I don't think it's possible that we can say, like, oh, you know, well, there's contradictions. Like, that's okay. Because as I said before, from mm -hmm. any contradiction, we can prove any statement to be true or false. Um, I, you know, I'd say again, that's totalizing because, and, and we have plenty of evidence that it is not true. Um, again, I mentioned- What do you mean um, by that? Well, Gödel's uh, or Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorem. Mm -hmm. Sure, so also, to be clear on that. So Gödel's incompleteness, well, incompleteness theorem basically mm -hmm. just said that any axiomatic system is going to have some limitations. Um, yeah. More specifically, there might be true statements that any particular set of axioms can't prove, but it doesn't say yeah. that contradictions are acceptable. No, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that contradictions are acceptable. I'm just simply saying that they're inevitable. Because again, any axiom axiomatic system is either contradictory or incomplete. Okay, well, incomplete is way different than contradictory. I can acknowledge sure. that there might there's probably some incompleteness around any system, um, but that mm -hmm. doesn't make it contradictory. Yeah, um, but it also doesn't make it not contradictory. Because again, we can't know for a fact that we've eliminated every contradiction because you don't know a contradiction until you find it. Sure, but what I would argue is that any set any type of theory that contains a contradiction is, is I, I think, necessarily becomes invalid. So if we find a contradiction, we have to seek to resolve that as soon as possible. It has to be resolved. We can't just accept a contradiction and say, well, that's okay. Well, again, getting... I'm not so much saying we accept the contradiction. Obviously, we would work to move around in much the same way that, like, uh, with uh, special gas laws. Um, like the, the, the gas laws function under certain conditions, but then when the conditions change, the, the laws no longer become useful. We don't throw the law out in, in much the same way that we don't throw out set theory because we know that it's still limited and has a direct contradiction within itself. So, okay, so to be clear on, so, okay. Uh, um, okay, so I know that a lot of these things get kind of like tossed around, but mm -hmm. I don't think that these are ever quite as people say them. So for Russell's paradox, um, Russell's paradox was a challenge that was like in the 1920s, I think, to naive set theory. Uh, that uh, 1900 that or maybe 1930. In, in, I know in the 1920s, yeah. it was resolved. So it was resolved over 100 years ago by mm -hmm. Zermelo Frankel uh, set theory. So Russell's paradox is a thing of the past. Nobody, we don't, we don't care about that anymore. That's 100 years old. Um, um, no, I mean, Russell's paradox is still important. But the thing is, is that set theory has grown beyond it because they found a contradiction and they 
built a new system based upon that. Like, yeah, exactly. But so what I'm saying is Russell's still... paradox is a challenge to naive set theory, but mathematics doesn't deal with na- with naive set theory anymore. We don't do anything with naive set theory. So I, Russell's I would paradox disagree. is not. Yeah, I would disagree with that. I'm pretty sure naive set theory is still used, but you know, again, I'm not a math guy, so you'll have to talk to a math guy for that. Gotcha. If any mathematician ever wants to challenge me or, or claim that I'm wrong, my understanding is that virtually all forms of mathematics start from um, it's either Zermelo-Franco the- uh, set theory or Zermelo-Franco theory with the with the choice axiom ZFC or ZF. These are like every mathematic, every mathematician, and every math theory basically starts with these places. Nobody uses naive set theory anymore. Um, as for like the ideal gas laws. Um, I'm not as well read on these, but my understanding is that like ideal gas law is it's not necessarily like a, I don't think it's a a law. I think that it's more just like, this is kind of like a simplistic equation that we can use to kind of get an idea for things. And as conditions change, the way that we view things might change. But I would say that that's similar to how for Newtonian mechanics, we can use these kind of up to a point, but that's not really our current understanding of the universe. And as things approach like certain sizes or relativistic speeds, then we have to appeal to like the the theory of relativity. We've got to refer to special or general relativity and that these things are going to be more precise. I think what you're doing here, though, is you're kind of conceding my point um, in that, yeah, certain things work to a point, and then they, we reach a point where either the contradiction can't be resolved and we have to abandon them in favor of something else. It doesn't mean that we don't ever use that thing again. So so we have to be careful when we talk about, like, if you're going to ask me if we use some shortcuts in the existence of our day-to-day life that, you know, we don't know, like, I couldn't have somebody sit down and write a formal proof for, then, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, I'll agree with that. But we're not arguing about, like, well, what is an engineer likely to use, right? What we're arguing about is, like, what should we uh, strive for in, like, our theories that we have? So, like, nobody, yeah. no, like, our current well, theories again, of physics don't include... I think you and I include... agree on what we should strive for. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for consistency, but what I'm saying is, is that I think by overemphasizing the, the, the fact that we need consistency what happens is is that you seem to naturally go from that to you look at another moral system that works most of the time you find someone is inconsistency you you catch someone as a hypocrite and uh what winds up happening is is that you're like okay so that moral system doesn't work and you throw it out when in fact it probably does work the thing is though uh, these systems are not perfect so there needs to be exceptions to every rule Okay, so I would say we have to be very careful. So the discussion of any particular ethical system exists only in an idealized form. It is not a person's behavior. Just because a person Mm -hmm. adheres to a particular set of ethics and they are a hypocrite or they do something wrong doesn't invalidate or cause a contradiction to arise in those set of ethics. Contradictions that arise within any formal theory should be able to be proven by deduction, um, not proven by behavior. So for instance, if you want to challenge any mm -hmm. ethical theory, you would have to show me that two statements within that ethical theory are contradictory or cause a contradiction. You can't just say that this person tries to appeal to that theory and they did something wrong. Therefore, that theory is bad. That would be similar to saying somebody did two times three equals 10. Therefore, multiplication or arithmetic is bad. Just because somebody makes a mistake on a behavior doesn't disprove the actual like uh, underlying rationale or the system. Yeah. I mean, again, I I don't disagree with that, uh, but I wasn't speaking specifically about someone not living up to their moral system. I was, I was, talking specifically about moral systems that may contain contradictions within themselves. Okay, you I understand that you're that saying that, well, I understand you're saying that, but the word you very specifically used was hypocrite, and it is impossible for a moral system to be hypocritical. Hypocrite implies you advocate for one thing while you do another thing, which yeah. requires an individual to exhibit a behavior. I don't think you can sure. get hypocrisy in a moral system. No, I, I get what you're saying. My, my point with using the, the phrase specifically hypocrite is I think there's ways for essentially the halo effect to creep into how we talk about systems by 
essentially attaching it to a person or to a person's behavior or to a person's perceived, um, I guess, uh, inconsistency. I sure, think, but we have to agree that we're separating, for the purposes of this conversation, we're absolutely separating any system or theory from a practitioner of said system or theory. Sure, at least as far as uh, the dealing with contradictions goes. I, I mean, I, I don't think you can necessarily completely divorce a system from how it is practiced within reality, but that's that's different than what you're saying. So I just want to make that clear. Does that make for sense? For sure. We can attack the practice of certain systems, but that doesn't invalidate the system itself. So for instance, every single Christian on the planet could turn into a ravenous murderer, and that wouldn't disprove the system of Christianity, or it wouldn't disprove the morals or the ethics of Christianity. It would just show that all Christians are horrible people. Whereas if I could demonstrate a contradiction in the Bible or in one of the Ten Commandments, I would be disproving the 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 command the whatever system of ethics, you know, Christianity purports to have, or specific sex Christianity purports to have, um, even if all individual Christians were good, holy people, or whatever. There's a fundamental difference between behavior and any particular theory or system that we've constructed. Or you know, I'm I'm not 100% sure I'm sold on that. I, I get, I take your point. I think it's a good one. Um, but I have actually, and if you've seen my other religious debates on here, I've sort of argued that the um, real test of a religion is its effect on its followers. And if it does promote them to live happy, productive, um, you know, harmonious lives. Yeah, but when you um, say the real test of a religion, what are you testing? What do you mean by that? The test of the religion. The test of the, if it does what it purports to do for people. I, I take, you know, I, I don't really, I'm a Buddhist. I don't really believe in a God I, and I focus heavily on humanistic elements. So when I look at a religion, I look at a religion in the same way I might look at an exercise routine. So if you do the one punch man workout, are you going to gain the powers that, uh, Saitama games, um, you know, if you don't gain those powers, it obviously, you know, and that's an inanime, but like, let's just say it turns out it's a bad workout and you aren't able to build muscle as effectively, then we've got a problem there. So in much the same way that um, a workout might not do what it purports to do, a religion might not do what it purports to do within reality. Um. Sure. So it's possible that some particular theory or some particular system in when practiced will come up short somehow, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's, that's not really a knock to the consistency or the, or the validity of said um, theory or system, un- unless it's making just demonstrably untrue uh, empirical claims. I mean, I would say that it might have it. So it's the idea of framing um, that putting a certain frame on something will create a uh, specific relationship with it within the mind of the person who adheres to it. So um, kind of like what I talked about with the word and the use of the word word in the English uh, language Bible, creating a frame in which uh, we are relating to ultimate reality and God as though it is a set settled thing that is separate from ourselves as opposed to conversation. They're, they're really the same idea being expressed, but because of the word used, it creates a different, I guess, it colors it differently through a different frame. Uh, another um, example of this, I just had it flew out of my head. I'll get it back in a second. You can respond. Um, yeah, I mean, I bet any of that may or may not be true. I just, I think that it's really important that to establish from the start that any particular theory or system we have, we cannot accept contradiction within that theory or system. If we do, then everything necessarily becomes absurd that we can prove the statement or the negation of literally any statement, assuming that we subscribe to like really basic tenets of, uh, I, I feel like you're being very totalizing here. And again, there's a difference between accepting, um, a contradiction and accepting that contradictions are inevitable. 
Um, I would well, say I have you- to, yeah, I have to be totalizing here because if I don't totalize this particular thing, then we immediately fall into a pit of absurdity or, or, or mm-hmm. epistemic nihilism or okay. something. Can, can you explain that to me exactly why? Sure. So <clears throat> if we allow any, any like theory to exist and we allow some contradiction to exist within that theory, assuming that we believe in like, it might even be like zeroth order logic, assuming that we believe like in any incredibly basic system of logic, if we allow a contradiction to exist and we say that we've proven both or we accept as true the contradiction uh, or or the two, I'm sorry, let me be more clear. If we say that we accept as true two proponents of a system that are contradictory from that particular contradiction, we can literally prove anything to be true. Um, I could read through it like an example of this, but it might be a little bit complicated, but I I think this is pretty well accepted for most Mm-hmm. Um, like people that practice for any I mean, I can look style. at it. Uh, uh, hang on for just a second, though, because I did remember what I was going to say. My other example of like a system, this is pulling us bo- back a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, so uh, Hegel had this concept called in framing. And essentially it is um, when you look at the world in a scientific manner, because the Greeks did not consider um, science to necessarily be technology, but more a way of thinking. So sorry, not scientific, uh, technological, techne. Um, So the way that like a sculptor like looks, Michelangelo looks at a big slab of marble and he sees the David in it. Um, It's a way of looking at the world, not for what it is, but what it can do or what it could be. And it's a good means of thinking. But if you totalize that kind of thinking um, and and you let it sort, you let that machine sort of take over. Uh, and become the frame for your reality to become your ideology, what you wind up doing is seeing everything in the world as a collection of resources to be exploited, uh, seeing human beings as essentially, you know, meat puppets to accomplish tasks. Um, And so like things that are not necessarily stated in the text, but may be, that may go unsaid as subtext, uh, as sort of background radiation for particular ideological ways of looking at things, Um, A big example that I might give is like the sort of ANCAP philosophy of self-ownership wind up having huge problems, not necessarily because of what they say, but because of how they say it and the frame that this creates. Whereas if you begin thinking of yourself and your body in terms of self-ownership, suddenly you're seeing yourself as a piece of technology and as opposed to something that exists for its own right. And thus you will inevitably begin to neglect yourself and to treat yourself as you would any other kind of property or possession. Um, So you are in a way diminishing yourself by believing in uh, in self-ownership. So does that make sense? I don't think, I don't know how that responds to the problems of contradiction. Um, no, no, it didn't. I just, I wanted to go back to finish because remember, I forgot what I, what oh, I was sure. going to bring up. So as far as the problem of contradiction, you would mention that. Um, yeah, real quick, just take a second. We're so like, we're this. purely in the world of the epistemic right now. So I don't yeah. care about any moral stuff. I don't care about real life behavior. I don't care about, we're purely in an epistemic world right now. Yeah. All I'm saying is that we must have, we, we must accept that any coherent system we use a necessary part of that coherence is that it doesn't contain within itself a contradiction. Um, I mean, sure. But again, you're, when you're talking about coherence, you're kind of begging the question, you know? It, it, well, yeah, because this is like literally like axiomatic, like a system just can't 
contain a contradiction, it can't. How do we yeah, even it, decide it, it, which it, contradictions it, a system could contain? Yeah, I mean, essentially, what we what we're dealing with here is unknown known. So as we know, every axi um, axiomatic system is either incomplete or contains a contradiction. We cannot know um, like how many contradictions there are in there because we cannot know what we don't know. We just have to go as far as we can and try to eliminate, uh, try to identify and eliminate as many contradictions as possible. Um, it, it, it's a Sisyphean task. It is rolling the boulder up the hill. We will never succeed, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, nor does it mean that what we discover while engaging in this process is necessarily worthless. That's the main thing that I wanted to, to, to say about that, um, and it's largely because what it the, the totalizing statement at the beginning, what it really worried me in was it wasn't just an error, um, but it made me feel like uh, it might lead you and people who embrace this particular ethic to throw out ethical systems because of a perceived uh, contradiction when, you know, that it, a contradiction doesn't destroy the system entirely. Well, that, but... Okay. I, so, I mean, I would advocate that if there is a perceived contradiction, the, the system is necessarily bonk and should be thrown out. I think that that's how all, all systems should work. Um, we could now, move should on. Should is a dangerous word, <laughs> but yeah. If you want well, to move on, we can. I mean, having no logical coherency <laughs> or, or or abandoning all epistemic norms, I think, is probably more dangerous. I would argue. Well, um, yeah, but nobody's doing that. Well, but by saying here... that we accept contradiction, we're essentially abandoning all epistemic norms. We're we're basically becoming like <laughs> epistemic anti-realists. Or I mean, are you going to do you abandon uh, again? This is math, but like, do you abandon math because there are limits? Like, a limit always approaches a point but never actually reaches it um like no the th that idea of the limit is still very effective so i well, think but we, well, for math so for math if there exist contradictions in math we don't accept those we'd seek to resolve those as soon as possible so russell's well, paradox i yeah. believe did demonstrate a contradiction that's why we abandoned mm -hmm. naive set theory that's why uh, okay. we left that we don't use that anymore yeah. it's completely gone no one it's done. I'm people might practice sure it. that's not it but whatever i'll bet my life on it it's like in practice <laughs> we might use it like people use newtonian calculations but nobody's seriously working in the field of mathematics unless you're doing like elementary stuff or basic stuff. like like zfc well, yeah, or but ZF see right there that's exactly what i mean so when you're talking about like morality especially to a, a popular audience like on on your show you're not talking to a room full of like moral philosophy professors you're talking to like people who are dipping in to to, to see your hot takes on things yeah like, and i understand that lunch. but again i'm separating out like behaviors versus just like our idealized system sure. like 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 i understand behaviors maybe we can try to move on from this and then mm -hmm. but if this disagreement comes up later, then we're going to, I mean, it's we're okay. not, we're we going to keep jumping into it. I think the diff, if I would say to, to resolve this, I, I think the difference here is I'm a little more comfortable with the presence of hypothetical contradictions um, or inevitable hypothetical contradictions than you seem to be. I think you're very driven to find these contradictions and remove them, which I will applaud you for. That is a great attitude. I just, again, I think it's a bit of a fool's errand. And I think that you may be overstating the the problem there, and that that's. But well, I, do you I think, for instance, like, could you ever say that like agreement. A is not A? Would you ever say that? Could you ever? Would you ever accept like that? Or plus two plus two equals five? Like, are these things that? I mean, I don't know about two plus two equals five. Um, I could. I think well, I like did, A equals not A, or like yeah, because it feels I like think we just, I, well, the A equals A. That's like a Randian thing, isn't it? No, this is like a foundational. This is like um, like the laws of thought. This is like one of three things, like the law of identity. Yeah, the, a thing is itself. Um, sure. I mean, I might 
I might have a slight objection to A equals A, not in the uh, equation form. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm, I know for a fact, like the objectivists were really big about saying A equals A. You argue with any of them. It's one of the things. Sure. Come up but with again, I, I'm not working on objectivism, any moral. I'm only looking. We're only in the land of the epistemic right now. I don't sure. even care about any of the moral stuff. Absolutely. So what I would say is there, there is inherently a problem with identity. Um, and it, it, this has been figured out in Eastern and Western philosophy, like for quite a long time. It's the same thing as the problem of the river, you know, like, do we all walk into the same river? Um, or in, in other words, like you can look at something like uh, the ship of Theseus. If you replace the rotted boards on the ship of Theseus, is it still the ship or is the ship of Theseus the idea or is it the rot? Or another great way of looking at it is the sun. How big is the sun? What do we actually say that is the sun? Is the sun the extent of its light? Is it the extent of its heat, the extent of its fire? And the answer is all of them. So the idea of A equals A is true, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything because we have the, the fact that something is something like that it has an identity is in part constructed uh, by our minds. Okay, well, we can we'll move on from this and we'll see if contradiction comes up later, I guess. But sure. <laughs> okay, we're moving out of the land of the epistemic. Nobody likes this place anyway. All right, what is the um, what was the next point to? Um, my, my next uh, objection. Mm-hmm. Um, let me pull back up my thing. So my first objection, this this one, I think, um, is the reason I put it in the middle. So have fun coming after it. Um, so uh, I don't think, I reject the idea that any moral system can be based wholly or even primarily on uh, what you call internal happiness or the maximizing of uh, your experience. Um, okay, I think why it's is sound- that? Well, I think it sounds reasonable on the face uh, of it, but I think the, the big problem is, is that one, if you center yourself and your ego um, like at the center of your morality, what you're realizing is you're not really loving yourself there. You actually are more interested in everything else or the combination of yourself and everything. So, you know, if your goal is to maximize your experience to go and you go and like uh, drink some great wine, it's, you don't care about yourself really. You care about the wine. Or the wine you, that is added to yourself. Yeah, so, exactly. But why yeah. do you care about the wine? Um, well, this is the thing. There, you've got, I, you've got this split into essentially two different parties: the internal and the external world. And I think that these appear to our common sense as very much the same, but I think in reality they, they absolutely are not. Uh, okay, or, I'm let sorry, me, very different, but in sure. reality, they are absolutely the same. Let me propose a hypothetical. Let's mm-hmm. say that a person exists. Let's say that there exists a perfect glass of wine somewhere that would quench this person's uh, every single facet of his experience. But mm-hmm. let's say that that person cannot ever gain any information about that wine. Perhaps it exists in another star system, and the person will never live long enough to travel to that. What does that particular thing of wine do to that person? Or how does that person relate to that particular thing of wine? I mean, if they don't know about it, they, they don't. Mm-hmm. So it does nothing for them. Okay, I agree. So I would argue that any type of external thing that you talk about as like sustaining or providing happiness to our experience is all done relationally to ourselves. And then I would appeal back to my uh, second, my, my third axiom that I want to maximize my own experience. So things existing inter- external of me don't matter insofar as if I can never interact with it or never know anything about it. Like the function sure. of that thing is going to be whatever pleasure or happiness I can derive out of that thing. 
Right. I'm not going to disagree with you on that, but what I'm going to say is nothing actually exists outside of you in, in much the same way that, um, you know, we don't know how far the sun actually extends. We don't know how far destiny is. You don't end at your skin any more than I end at my skin. Um, I would have to say, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, that might, that could also be something that just flows from some axiomatic statement. I, I would assume that we would have to assume that things exist external ourselves. Otherwise, I don't know. I like, mean, things exist external ourselves in a certain sense, but not ultimately. Like, evolution doesn't favor organisms that experience reality directly. It favors organisms that experience reality in a way that is most conducive to their survival and or reproduction. Um, and this is really a very important point because human brains really like to break things down into lists and patterns because that helps us as organisms survive. But that's not reality. That's, that's our interface with reality in much the same way that the computer screen is not, it's not the computer itself. It's how you interact with it. It's still important. It still exists. But ultimately, the computer is much more than just the screen. I understand that. Um, so in, in some sense, reality is constructed in the brain. That seems to be mm -hmm. true. Um, but I mean, I would still appeal to, I would still say that there, we ought to act in a way that there exists an external world. Otherwise, again, we fall into, at the very least, ethical absurdity. Yeah. So for instance, I could walk up to 20, or here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. I could walk up to 20 people and murder every single person. Is that actually wrong if there is no external reality? It's all just stuff in my head? What would be your argument against murdering people? And uh, well, I would say in a certain sense, um, it, it, so... And this is actually a big question, like in the Buddhist. So, so it, like it, it, the sutras bring this up a lot. Um, so, in the sense that you can't actually die, and nobody can actually die because we're not individuals. Um, you know, you could walk up and and murder twenty people, and oh, it's a wash because we're all the great Brahmin, the Godhead, whatever. But that I would still say it's not a good idea to do that because those twenty people are also you. Okay, wait, so to be very yourself. clear, I want to talk in terms of like like moral rights are wrong. So I don't care mm -hmm. like what wouldn't be a good idea or would be a good idea, right? I kind of want to be able to say like this is something that we ought to do or ought not to do. So, I mean, I, of, I, so if we yeah. believe that there is no external world, if none of those things exist um, by what you've said, and if we say that like, well, maybe like blowing a bunch of people up would make us really happy, like what would stop you or how would you condemn a person on those grounds? You say, hey, don't do that. That's fucked up. And the guy's like, why? They don't real. Like the whole external yeah, world is fake. So that's the, kind of the problem of inflation that people see um you know and sometimes when somebody like slips into the sort of oceanic consciousness especially if they're coming from a western uh perspective they start to think they're god you know or you get like really heavy solipsism where you know um i am the only person that exists well and but you've essentially you've about. purported solipsism haven't you no no i definitely have not there's a there, there's a very subtle difference here um so what we're talking about uh, with regard, it's not so much that the external world doesn't exist, it's that the external world and the internal world are ultimately two sides of the same coin. They, they, they can't be separated. So you can't- So we do acknowledge that there does exist some external content, right? There is some content yeah. in the world. There is something external ourselves, right? It, there is something external, our consciousness, our ego. Okay, um, but I agree with that. Yeah. But then why would we say- so then I guess I don't understand your second point of nothing exists outside of yourself. How is this a challenge to anything I've said? Um, nothing exists out because yourself is everything. It's the totality. It's the ground of being, um, the, the dream of Brahman. If you, are you familiar at all with Hinduism? 
Um, I'm not, but so I agree with everything you're saying, but my, I feel like all three of my axioms play into that very well. So I exist, I have an experience and I want to maximize my experience. You've told me that there is some internal being that every single thing external is relational to that internal being. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I agree with you, but it feels like your, that statement could just as easily flow from my three axioms. I don't understand how that contradicts anything I've asserted so far. The issue in that sense, it doesn't. The issue is the quest to maximize something for your internal being. And that if you're not maximizing something for your internal being, what are you maximizing it for? Um, well, again, I don't think you necessarily should look to maximize. What should um, you? What? Well, why not? Well, because that's essentially the world of hungry ghosts. Like that's wait, that's, uh, wait, that's not an argument. So my question. No, no, is, it is. It's it's it sounds like it's not, but continue. Well, I, I'm, I'm so a person has an experience, a person exists and they have an experience. It seems like they should seek to maximize their experience. They want to do what makes them happiest or what uh, like purports at least to fulfill their desires as maximally as possible. Why shouldn't a person do that? Well, think about that for a second. Think about the people who are able to fully maximize and fulfill every desire. Mm-hmm. They don't actually find it all that fulfilling in much the same way that if you go into a video game with invincibility codes um, you're eventually going to get really, really bored of it. I mean, the, the fact is, is that we have this idea that we, especially in the West, that we get some kind of technological uh, omnipotence and, you know, get everywhere in an instant, avoid every bad thing that could happen to us. And, you know- Well, I but- think to be clear, I understand what you're saying, but this is like, this is a very, very naive assumption of what it means to maximize one's experience. So I like to maximize my experience playing games. That doesn't mean I turn on cheek with everything. I'm the exact opposite. I like to turn everything to the hardest difficulty and die a million times. Exactly. But I'm yeah. still maximizing <laughs> my experience. Maximizing your experience doesn't mean like taking like a six-year-old's idea of like, oh, well, I want to be invincible and immortal and never die. And now I'm floating in the universe alone because I'm too dumb to know what I meant by maximum, right? Like we can, we can be a little bit more charitable to that maximize my experience axiom. And we could say like, well, the maximization of your experience doesn't necessarily mean being invincible in all video games, right? Yeah. And and I I think my opening statement um, said that specifically because um, you have, and I think I acknowledge that, yeah, I don't think you have a naive idea of egoism. I just think your, in, your enlightened egoism still has really, really serious problems because you're, what you're essentially doing is you're building a framework around chasing and fulfilling desires, uh, mm-hmm. around hedonism, essentially. And you can do that, but like evolution, again, did not build our brains to do that. Every time we get what we want, we just want something else and then something else and then something else. And suddenly, you know, you're essentially running the rat race. You're, you're living in samsara, chasing the desire, chasing the want. Um, and there are probably and- forms of desire that are relatively fulfilling that don't leave us wanting more and more and more. Um, If I I can appeal somewhat to history, like a lot of people profess that they have a a great and intense happiness in raising children, but very rarely do you see somebody produce child after child after child after child. You don't see a mom (laughs) that's like, I love my kids. That's why I have 45 of them. All right. Like, I think that there are certain forms of pleasure or happiness that we can pursue. That doesn't mean we're going to do it like a million times over. Right. I've known some quiverful weirdos. There was a guy I met on the Appalachian trail. He was a priest and he was one of 18 kids. So some people do do that. Sure. I'm sure (laughs) there's going to be yeah. the the yeah i mean i'm catholic so i, I and catholic mm-hmm. families those tend to be quite large oh yeah yeah no my my family's catholic as well 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I, so I don't think that we necessarily have a contradiction here. I mean, like, I would agree that we have to be careful what we talk about in terms of maximizing our experiences. But I think that, I think that you have to give a very naive reading of that to get to bad places. So, like, I don't think that the theory or the framework is broken. I think that it's just the interpretation might be bad. So, for instance, somebody might take said system and say, oh, well, I'm going to go and kill 30 people because that's a lot of fun and that's going to make me happy. And they try to kill one person, they fail, and then they're locked up in jail forever. And it's like, okay, well, seems like this wasn't really a good idea. You, you know, you had a very bad... Bad, like application of the theory, but that doesn't mm-hmm. challenge the theory itself, right? Whereas people that try to like do well to others, people that live lives and, you know, do charity service and have happy families and friends, like they tend to have a much more maximized experience than the person in jail rotting for attempted manslaughter or murder. I mean, I, I won't a hundred percent disagree with that because I do like that you have a more totalizing view of this, but also keep in mind, you're communicating with millions and millions of people and like YouTube and Twitch skew young. So in much the same way that we saw that there was a problem with translating in the beginning, there was the word, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, it all began with a con- with a conversation just the way that you're phrasing that, let's assume that you are correct in chasing desire, which I I don't 100% accept, but let's assume that just the way that you're phrasing that when you communicate to people is naturally going to create that frame for the people that listen to you. Yeah. so So while I understand this might be the case, this is a conversation on my particular system of ethics, not my mm -hmm. rhetoric or not how effective it is that I can communicate the system of ethics from one person to another, right? Sure. So because what, I can because I'm going to yeah. argue that Buddhism or Christianity or literally any other religion has been communicated in poor ways in the past as well that have led to demonstrable harms too. Mm-hmm. But, so, okay, I mean, well we can I, I we can uh, agree to disagree on that. So what I can say is um, wait, agree to disagree. What part of that would we disagree with? Uh, well, I, mean, I was probably just using that as a phrase to we can we can put a pin in that. Um, okay. I like, mean, I, would you disagree that almost every religion has been used? Oh, de- definitely every religion has been used. Not, okay. not the only reason I would even say almost is I'm maybe there's some religion that I haven't ever encountered. Sure, but yeah, it has no. like five people. Yeah, so so yeah, so I, I think that, and then fundamentally, this is a conversation on the um, soundness. I think of my moral system, not necessarily like have I communicated it in the best way, or can somebody take it and do something bad with it? Like those are, I think, completely separate discussions. Fair that enough. So, so let's it, let's dive in. That sounds good. So let's dive into this because you know, obviously, if I misunderstood you and uh, saw like the the going after maximizing experience or internal happiness is essentially like the rat race running on the wheel of samsara. Can you explain a little bit more into it, like what you mean by that? And um, you know, hopefully we can. Because uh, it seems like we are close to agreeing on this point, actually, which is great. <clears throat> sure. So, I mean, like, I usually, anytime I bring up the maximizing experience thing, I almost always segue that into some form of altruism because it seems to logically follow based on any type of reasonable person um, or their interpretation of how to apply this to your life. Um, so, there are several examples that I'll bring up. Um, one example might be um, let's say that I am like a racist white person in my city and I just don't like black people. Even if that was the case, I would still want to advocate for black people to do better in my city because it would mean less money wasted on police departments arresting them. It would mean more potential customers for my business. It would mean less money wasted on like bad infrastructure projects. It would mean a higher educated base by which I could generate wealth. Right. right. That basically like the idea is that as long as you're maximizing the experience of other people around you, and as long as humans synergize with each other's experiences, which we seem to, that you should be advocating maximally for everybody's happiness and, and experience because doing so will in a roundabout way, or sometimes even in a direct way, help yourself. So a very direct example that I've given a million times is let's 
let's say that you go into a room with four friends. Let's say that there's five candy bars on the table. If you want, you can walk up to the table and eat all five candy bars and maximize your enjoyment there. And it would be awesome. But all four of your friends are going to be fucking pissed at you. And you're not going to have a very good time after that. Right. Whereas sharing a little bit um, tends to make everybody around you happier. You all have a better experience and seem, people seem to be better for that. For whatever reason, humans seem to be socially designed creatures and it seems like we enjoy each other's company. So having other people that are doing well applies like this very big synergistic effect where everybody like kind of like synergizes with each other's experiences and we all kind of like drive each other to do better and be better. Yeah. Sure. I'm, I'm not going to disagree with any of that like on its face, but I, I will still say that um, this seems to be like a highly technocratic approach. It's a good argument. Uh, I will when you say, out, can I, I'm just asking for a definition. What do you mean when you say technocratic? Um, it seems to be that like the argument that you are making um, is an effective one within the framework uh, that you've constructed here. Um, so what I'm well, saying- Well, I would like, hope so because I'm arguing from my framework. So of course yeah. it should be effective <laughs> if, assuming it's valid and sound, yeah. Yeah. So I, when, when, I'm, when I'm saying it's technocratic, it's more like you're thinking of society uh, within this framework as, um, you know, a happiness machine, if, if that makes sense. So uh, you, you gave the impression that even a racist should, and we know they don't because racism uh, distorts their thinking um, and makes them not realize this very obvious fact, but they should realize the obvious fact that if everyone does well in society, it's going to come back and benefit them as well because they are a member of society. Um, I feel like that argument appeals to a specific kind of thinking um, and there's definitely like a lot to be said for it. The, the only caveat I'd give you is I'm just following that through to its logical conclusion. I don't think that you're going to get as much out of it as you might otherwise assume. What do you mean again, by get as much out of it? Get, get what out of what? Well, because uh, chasing something external uh, as far as happiness goes is, again, running on a hamster wheel. Um, because of how our brains react. So wait, but there what, must be some there we can. Okay. So I guess we can talk about mm -hmm. this hamster wheel thing. Do we acknowledge that there are different types of happinesses? Sure. Yeah. So there might be, so I'm going to use Reddit versus a book as an example that we can browse Reddit for 48 hours and we can read through every meme post for, you know, four days straight or whatever. Um, or we could read a book and we could get a different type of more satisfying long-term happiness out of it. than mm -hmm. we might out of just browsing memes. We've got like low effort, high effort, types of happiness, right? Sure. Yeah. I, I would, I would agree 150% there. Okay. So there are probably forms of fulfilling long-term happiness that can lead us to a certain contentedness in life. Like fulfilling happiness or maximizing existence doesn't necessarily mean like participating incessantly in the commodification of every single aspect of our lives where we have mm -hmm. to buy the best cars and have the best clothes and have the coolest shoes and have the best computers, right? There are probably more fulfilling forms of happiness that we can attempt to maximize, right? Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I, I would just say that uh, I don't think we will ever fully succeed at it. Okay, sure. Um, maybe, maybe not. But I, I'm, so I'm just saying that, like, I don't think that just because I say that I'm um, trying to maximize our happiness means that we're committed to running a rat wheel. I think that there are some forms of very fulfilling long-term happiness that we can achieve within our lives. Sure. Uh, so I will agree with you on that, um, I, though I do think it definitely, if you're going to communicate that in the future, it needs to be much more specifically said than the way I've seen it communicated in the past. Sure. And I would um, challenge, I'd be very interested to see how I've set, seen that said in the past, because I've talked about all of these things a great number of times, that there are a lot of temporary happinesses in the world 
world, that commodification is a really bad thing, that we've sold people on really bad ideas of what it means to be happy, that the greatest forms of happiness all have to start with a foundation of self-love and that everything past that is literally pointless. Um, these are all things I've talked about like a million times on my stream before, usually in the context of discussing said moral system. Okay. So, you know, and I, I, you know, I've watched your stuff, but I haven't watched hours and hours of your yeah, stuff, so maybe I course. just missed yeah. it. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Uh, so I think we've uh, pretty much come to an agreement there. So that, that's okay. exciting. There, there is one other point to it mm -hmm. um, that I still have a, an objection. And again, it comes with centering individual happiness, like at the center of a a moral system because a big part of like moral rules if you're using moral rules they're not simply there to um i guess to serve a person but oftentimes they're there to forbid a person from doing something that they want to do at a time and would otherwise do if they were not in within a moral system so yeah i agree that's why so i've got like my two three parters so the number one is i exist i have an experience i want to maximize my experience and then i say other people exist other people have an experience other people want to maximize their experience and then the third part is human synergize to create a better experience than otherwise possible on their own i think that between those rules between those seven statements um necessarily some actions are going to be restricted so for instance if you want to maximize your experience by murdering people, well, that's going to be contrary to their desire to maximize their experience. And it's going to cause you not to maximize your own because as soon as you start murdering people, people are going to minimize your experience. People are going to try to kill you or lock you up or otherwise inhibit your ability to be free. Okay. And then uh, I guess the final thing is, is that the, the, the presence of enemies, uh, specifically the, the presence of challenges um, you talked in a very totalizing way about, um, you know, I think you said something like if there was somebody that didn't accept your system, mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing to do there. There's conflict. Um, Depending on the type of conflict, the person would have to be eliminated from the system somehow. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. But I think this isn't, I don't think this is very controversial. I think almost every single system will purport the same statement is what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm a lot would purport the same statement. And I think a lot would be wrong. Because again, we need enemies. We, Do we need like murderers and rapists in society? I mean, to a certain extent, we need bad things to be able to happen so that good things can happen. Like, Why do we need murder and rape in society? So the idea, and again, I'm, I'm not going to say on camera those exact words because that could be clipped out of context and taken in a in okay why any do we need m and r in society or <laughs> yeah. why do we need any particular bad why do we need children starving why do we need people dying of alzheimer's disease or cancer yeah why do we need people committing suicide of any wrong why do we need these so, so you, your question is why does evil exist no that's not my question at all that, that seems to be the question no that's a very 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 different question that is a very meta level way that's like a very off ontological okay. question my question so, is so in why do you why, 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 why do why do why do we need evil why is evil required no no no. hold on that? let me be very specific my question mm -hmm. okay why is it that in order for me to have a maximized experience why do I need other people to suffer? Or why do I need other people's experiences to not be maximized? You don't just need other people to suffer. You need to suffer to have a maximized experience. Okay. In what ways? How do we quantify or, or qualify? What, what types of suffering are required? So I, the, the issue is, is that we can't really experience high highs if we don't have low lows to contrast them with. Um, so for instance, a good example would be, um, eating a wonderful meal after a really difficult day of hard work where you've, where you've exerted yourself as opposed to having a day where you sit on, you know, the couch all day, and then you go and have the exact same meal. It will taste better specifically because of the contrast. 
So, so for us to be happy and to advance, we have to engage with obstacles. We have to so meet I can, resistance. Okay. Okay, I'm going to try to reformulate this in the strongest version possible. I agree that there are some forms of challenging things, that there are some sorts of obstacles. Um, hold on, let me think. For, I'm sorry. Hold on. Can I? Let me just think for like five sure. seconds, okay? Okay. Okay. I think that there are some forms of challenges that can exist in society such that if these challenges exist, they cause a higher maximal experience than if they didn't exist. Can we agree mm -hmm. with that? Right. Yeah. Okay. I agree that there are some forms of suffering in life that exist that we must endure in order to reach higher highs. A really good example of this is working out, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. exactly. Uh, okay. I will acknowledge that these exist. However, I will claim that these are subsumed within my idea of maximizing an experience. So for instance, if I say part of my maximal experience is enjoying like a very healthy relationship with my fiance or wife, right? Mm -hmm. Part of that requires some amount of sometimes what's not fun work, but that's necessitated in, in part of that experience. Um, so I, I think that that's true, but I mean, I, I would say, obviously, that's going to be part of maximizing any type of experience. I don't think that, um, I don't think that, that like sticking yourself full of like heroin and inject yourself till you die, that that's like maximizing your human experience or whatever. Like, I, like I, I wouldn't right. say like, Oh, like that, that's not what I'm aiming for. When I talk about like maximal experience, mm -hmm. um, I think that any, any type of maximizing of my experience is going to subsume within that. Like there might be some struggle related to achieving like certain good ends. So for instance, the video game example we brought up earlier, I really like beating games on like the maximized stupid difficulty. Mm -hmm. That's really fun for me. And that's yeah. going to involve a large amount of suffering and, and stupid shit along the way of beating that game. And, oh yeah, yeah. I've played the whole Souls series and it drives me freaking crazy. But mm -hmm. you, you, but I will you, say that there are yeah, forms of yeah. suffering. However, mm -hmm. I don't think that just because we need some forms of suffering that that all of a sudden allows us to justify all forms of suffering. I think that we can divide suffering into two categories. I would say we would have one category that I would call necessary suffering, and necessary suffering is some obstacle that must be overcome or or some challenge that must be met in order to maximize your experience. And then I will have another category called unnecessary suffering, where I will say the unnecessary suffering produces no good for society. And I would say that we should all probably seek to eliminate the unnecessary suffering. So things like child starvation or, you know, lung cancer or, you know, death in childbirth. I think that these forms of unnecessary suffering should be ex eliminated because they don't maximize human experience. Um, I will agree with you on that. Um, and our task as humans would be to do our best to eliminate them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if all of them could be eliminated. Sure, um, whether or not something know. can or cannot be eliminated is irrelevant to the question. The question is just what ought we do? What ought we, what are we aimed yeah. at doing, right? And our eventual goal, I would imagine, is to eliminate all unnecessary suffering in the world. Sure. I don't know if we can ever achieve that, but that's a matter of practicality, not a matter of the theory. The theory is that Absolutely. what we ought to do, the prescription is we ought to be eliminating all forms of unnecessary suffering. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I think from a human perspective, because we are humans and we are partisan to that, that's absolutely our, our task. So if we're talking about human morality, I think you're 100% mm -hmm. on it. Um, now, expanding that out to the entire universe, um, the, it becomes a bit more, uh, a bit less practical in the sense that like, you know, you run into the problem of, do you wipe an entire species out simply because it causes suffering for humans? Um, maybe is, I can't, I can't speak to like alien civilization. I don't even know that might break every possible understanding <laughs> I have. Maybe they exist on like seven other dimensions. I, I can't even fathom that. 
Um, that literally might exist outside of like my epistemic understanding of the, the world. Maybe there are things that exist that have contradictory properties or that both are and are not, or things that have, uh, you know, there's, yeah, I can't, yeah, I, I can't really address that yet. So I guess, I guess my point being though, in that we bring it out is I think what a lot of people really want essentially, because most of us, and I'll go down to it. And I'll say, I don't think we as individuals can ever fully truly know what we want. Like there's stuff that we think we'd want and there's certain themes that we go after it. But the the more you go down that route of, you know, I'd like this, I'd like that, the more you start to realize, I don't know if that's really it. So the the one thing that I think that we do definitely want is a pleasant surprise, you know, but the problem is, is that to have pleasant surprises, you must also have unpleasant surprises. You must have rude shocks. You must, and this is why, you know, I, I brought up martial arts and the philosophy that, you know, when you get into uh, kumite with someone, when someone has a, a agreed to hit you and to be hit by you, it's actually a very intimate and kind thing because those, that, the, the force of being hit with, you know, the shock gives you a sense of being alive that few other things do. Um, so I think to a certain extent, if we do put this out, that we are all Brahma, we're all the dreaming Godhead, we're God experiencing itself, uh, in, uh, infinite varieties. Um, the, the fact is, is that evil and suffering and even, even suffering that humans would consider bad or unnecessary suffering as opposed to suffering is still part of that entire process. And I would argue that it's from a certain vantage point, even though it is discord at one level, it's harmony at a higher level in much the same way that like, you know, the pattern. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily maybe disagree with this. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with these statements. Like we can't know what we want. I don't know what that commits me to. Like mm-hmm. I would have to assume that we're the best understanders of what we want and for things that we aren't 100 sure on we're going to use hopefully we use scientific tools to investigate these things um so for instance in the realm of psychology we might do investigations to figure out you know like well what makes us happy you know we might collect a bunch of data and say like oh well look at this like people that mm-hmm. um you know work in these types of jobs you know report less happiness or something so we can investigate our experience as much as possible to try to figure out you know what makes us happy doesn't happy or doesn't make us happy but in terms of like a statement like we can't know what we want I, like i don't know what i can meaningfully do with that statement it's not like just because i don't know what I want doesn't mean I can just turn to someone else, have them tell me, right? I still have to, that, that responsibility to investigate that desire is up to me as much as possible. Sure. Yeah. I, I agree with you a hundred percent there. Um, okay. But I, I just kind of think that again, with centering the want um, can lead to other problems like this, but I think we're coming to uh, a pretty good understanding here. So I, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, like, Basically, just in case, just to put a, a capper on this, and I think we you've already agreed with this to a certain extent, but um, the example of uh, in one of Christopher Hitchens' debates, I think it was, he like asked a pastor like who was saying like everything is God's plan. He was like, well, what's you know God's plan about the this worm that eats children's eyes and blinds them? And um, you know the the obvious answer to that is well, it's terrible for us. It's good for the worm. Um, so, you know, when we, uh, essentially that's kind of my answer to the problem of evil 
Um, Wait, God, why, why would said, God create worms that can only survive by eating the eyes of children? Yeah, well, there aren't worms that only survive. It's just that that's what they do. Um, and it seems again, also weird because I think if we if we take a religious centered approach to this, God create like animals and the planet is the domain of humans. It exists to serve humans, right? So why would He create things that are necessarily predatory towards humans or only exist to cause damage or harm to humans? Uh, so. I have a huge problem with the idea of God as the sovereign, as the thing that is intelligently in charge of society and builds and designs everything. I think that's a that's actually a really bad way of looking at God or Brahman or ultimate reality. Um, so it's so, God that's like omnipotent or? No, I, God that is the, well, omnipotent in the sense that um, like, is literally everything in the universe. Uh, so think Spinoza's God is probably the closest Western thing that I can put it into. Um, so then God as opposed, is so then literally it's just nature that we're talking about. Yeah, n- nature, existence, humanity, it, it's all one um, process, one flux. Um, and we're just the, ex- the universe experiencing itself. I think um, Alan Watts kind of compared it to like the conscious experience. Imagine you've got a... a a light covered by a black ball and in the ball are pinholes and each pinhole is a uh, aperture through which the light comes out. So each of us and all animals and everything else are that has conscious experience are the pinholes, but we're also the light underneath it, which is, you know, existence itself. That would be what I would refer to as God. So in the sense of uh, God being associated with a king or a craftsman who went and made the universe, I would think of it more uh, in the sense that God is the deep down stuff that is the universe, uh, the the um, you know the ground of being, as as it's usually put. Um, so in that sense, you know, just like with a chicken, when a chicken eats a mouse, it's not like it's not evil; it's just. Being a chicken, one of the things that it will do is it will go after whatever kind of protein that it can get a hold of. In the same reason that a gull eating a fish, it's the the fact that the gull isn't evil or rapacious. It's just being a gull is the same thing as eating fish. Do you acknowledge that there is like a fundamental difference between a gull or a chicken and a human? I mean, yeah. I, I would say there's no, in the sense of, you know, the problem of identity, we're all the gull and the fish and the chicken and the human. Wait, but, but what I'm asking is like, yeah. do you think there's the same level of moral responsibility or culpability? Certainly not. No, hu- oh. humans have a much higher uh, level of responsibility and culpability because we understand morality. And in fact, I would say that. Yeah. So you wait, know, my, my question is, and how do you draw a distinction then between humans and chickens? If the, the whole universe is just the universe itself. Like, um, I'm having a hard time understanding like whether or not you recognize there are distinct entities that exist or whether it's all just the same thing to you. And if it is all just the same thing to you, I don't know how you ascribe different properties to different things or what the process by which you do that is. I mean, I would say I recognize both simultaneously. It, 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 in one sense, we are the direct conscious experience of these beings. And then in the other sense, there is another um, sort of higher self underneath that. And that would be the totality of existence. Um, okay. yeah. So, um, yeah. So yeah, the answer is both simultaneously. And I guess uh, since I'm saying both, I could also say both and neither. Um, and that sounds pretentious enough. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, I think, um, I think that was all three of the big points, unless you think there's oh, that was two actually. Oh, oh, I thought the third one was okay, but that was under, that was a sub point to do. Okay. Well, what was the third one? 
Um, so the third point, and um, this one was my shortest, but I also think it's one of the stronger ones, and that's why I chose to end on it. Um, let me find it here. Um, is I take issue with the fundamental assumption that a moral system, any moral system, functions as a mechanism into which one can feed data and by so doing come to a perfect or nearly perfect moral conclusion. Um, essentially, this goes back to what you had said in uh, your video on morality when you had kind of you used some graphics and stuff and you were like, um, if then, you know, you basically feed data or hypotheticals into this moral system and then out comes uh, the answer, essentially. Um, and I sort of tied that into and why we've kind of been talking around God. It, I feel that this is heavily influenced because you are a Westerner who grew up in a Catholic family, much like I did. Uh, you're heavily influenced by, e even though you have rejected Christianity, you're still heavily influenced by Christian ideas, and that has come to have you see morality in this way. And what I argued essentially was, again, with Erasmus of Rotterdam, instead of in the beginning there was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, it is, it all rose out of a conversation, a conversation within God, and in fact, the conversation was God. So God started the discussion, and everything came out of this, and nothing happened without consultation. This was the life, life uh, that was the light of men shining in the darkness, a darkness which neither understood nor quenched its creativity. So the idea is, is that morality, at least the way I'm looking at it, is not so much a set of systems or a machine that we use as it is a physical process that we do in the same way that we dance. Uh, or that we sing. And you could say, I, I don't know if anyone else has ever advanced an aesthetic theory of morality. I, I think they probably have. Um, but I, I feel that aesthetic or kinesthetic is a better way to look at what morality is, moral disagreements, moral, um, uh, moral progress, um, than necessarily uh, something that we build so that we always know the right answer. I don't think it's. I don't think being a moral person is a question of finding the right moral system and comporting yourself to that moral system. In much the same way that I don't think um, being a, uh, a a good human is a matter of finding the right God and comporting oneself to the behavior of that 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 God expects. Does that make sense? Kind of, but I don't know how that was any challenge to any part of my system. <laughs> I guess, other than it sounds like you have some belief. Um, for morality, but it, I don't. I don't understand. I don't think a contradiction in my system has been demonstrated, or some conclusion that I otherwise would reject um, has been demonstrated in my system. Which are the two things that I'm looking for. So I mean, you would you'd essentially said in your system that what morality should do is, and and maybe I I took this wrong. It was like right at the beginning of your video, um, that what morality should do that most people like um, either think what how do I immediately respond to a given hypothetical or how do, does my group expect me to respond to a given hypothetical? And so you had essentially made the argument that moral systems go beyond that to something that someone should use to understand how to act in a specific situation. Oh yeah. So what I'm saying is that like, so what I would hope is if we have different levels of uh, different abstractions of thought, we have different levels of thought that mm -hmm. I would hope 
that we have investigated our own beliefs and desires and thoughts enough that we've reached some foundational level of understanding for what it is that we want in life. So if somebody were to ask me, hey, um, there's a homeless guy over there. He's passed out and there's like 20 bucks laying on the side. Do you think we should steal it from him? That if somebody were to ask me that, I feel like a lot of people, their, their, their first thought is, if I do this, like, what are the consequences? You know, how will my friends see me? Will people judge me? Will I get in trouble? And that this is generally the level that most people function at when it comes to thinking about whether or not something is right or wrong, or more specifically, if we ought to or ought not to do a particular thing. What I advocate for is that I would hope that somebody has investigated their own personal feelings enough to have a more fleshed out moral system that would deliver them better answers than will I get in trouble for something or will there be a negative consequence for something? I would want people to be a bit more moral or a bit more strictly uh, adherent to some internal like philosophy or internal ethical system rather than just doing, you know, the least that's expected of them from the people around them is essentially what I was saying there. But okay. No, this is, this is actually really fascinating. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that um, because that puts some things in a slightly different light. Um, so first off, it's very interesting because my immediate um, response to that was make sure that that $20 bill gets tucked back into that guy's thing and maybe add some money to it um, or make sure that, you know, you can help him in some way. Like that was my instant moral intuition. Um, so this sounds a little bit like the, are you familiar with like the six stages of morality? Oh, I think I've seen this at one point before. Um, yes. I have to this, look this up, but I, I know yeah. we've, it, ha, um, it has to do with like, how do we consider like things? And I think isn't like stage, the, the first stage or something is like, uh, n- never mind. Just go ahead. Explain it to me. I'm yeah. not going to try to. So, uh, well, I, I'm, I'll probably get it wrong if I try to do each of the six, but it's basically the six stages of moral development starting from yeah okay yeah i I got i just i looked up real quick yeah okay so it's like number one is like avoiding punishment number two is self-interest number three is good boy attitude number four is law and morality number five is social contract and then number six is principle yeah yeah so like i strive for principle um and then as a parent you know even if you have a kid you know that like working at that bottom level of avoiding punishment that even that's like the worst way to discipline a kid that you should Mm -hmm. be striving more for the self-interest level than just the avoiding punishment that uh like having like positive rewards is a more successful form of um of of sure conditioning that then punishing people right yeah yeah so so yeah exactly so it sounds like what you're concerned about is people who are like in the third or fourth stage or maybe the second with avoiding punishment uh with regard to that um and that the most people will ever make it to is like that third stage of good boy attitude is mm -hmm. like the highest most people ever make it well, yeah, that's a possibility. I, I I would have to see how people are polled. I would really hate to to think that that was would be where they get stuck. And this actually might this might go back to our um, different opinions, basically, like with regard uh, with regard to riots and, and and that kind of thing, civil disobedience. Because I we've spoken before, and we have slightly different um, opinions on that. Um, you know, with regard to the violation of specific social norms, for instance, like um, I think I asked you this one, like the guy's wife is dying of cancer. There's a druggist in town. He's the only one that 
can sell the cure. He refuses to sell the cure. Is the guy justified in stealing it or attacking it? How should it be dealt with? Like somebody at stage five might say something like along the lines of, yes, he's justified in stealing it or attacking the guy to get it because he's trying to save his wife's life. Mm-hmm. Um, someone at say at stage six might say something to the effect of, yes, he's justified in stealing it, but then he needs to turn himself into the police and suffer whatever consequences uh, would, would occur from it. So, you know, as people move along in their moral um, development, it would be nicer to see people move towards the higher levels. What I, what I can tell you as a parent, um, what's very interesting for me, at least, seeing my son develop, uh, he's two right now, and more than even rewards oftentimes or the avoidance of punishment, what seems to really motivate him actually is compassion. In the sense that I will sit there and tell him, like, um, I'll be like, do you want another bite of dinner? And he will instantly reject the bite of dinner because Dada is asking him to do it. Um, to which point then I will puppet the dinner and I, I will have the, the piece of food ask to be eaten by him. And he instantly agrees every time when the, when the food asks him. And similarly, when his clothes ask him to put them on, uh, when his potty asks him to, to use it. Um, this really pushes him along. So I think, you know, I don't see that reflected necessarily in the six stages of morality, but my my point is, is that I I think people undervalue the persuasive power of compassion itself. Um, And this goes back to something that I wanted to say, but didn't work into my, um, uh, to, to my opening statement. One of the other things that has worried me about the way in which you phrase your moral system uh, is that it does leave compassion outside of the equation somewhat, or at least it is understated compared to the, the more basic stuff that I've seen you put out. Yeah, so the reason why I don't try to make compassionate arguments or more specifically arguments of empathy is because I believe that those arguments will fail a great deal of time, and I believe that there's a lot of, especially on the fascist side of things, there's a lot of arguments there that heavily rely on compassion or empathy. But the thing is, is that they're very selective of who they apply that compassion to. I think that my moral system should work with literal robots um, to some extent in terms of they have zero empathy or compassion for other people. Um, I'm a relatively dispassionate, unempathetic person, I-, I would say, compared to most people. But I still think that I act in ways that's more, I think that more pe- people would broadly characterize my behavior as generally more moral than other people that you know claim to be very empathetic or very compassionate. Um, mm-hmm. Just because I recognize the benefit of having other people around me that are happy, healthy, being treated well, et cetera. Uh, so I-, I typically, I avoid compassion for a couple of reasons, for two main reasons. So as I said before, one is that it's just not part of my system. I don't need compassion to come to what I consider to be morally righteous answers ever. Um, and then two, I believe that appeals to compassion are highly subjective and will get you to very bad places depending on whose compassion you're appealing to. Um, so for instance, uh, as a really good example of this, um, brown people are invading our country and they're stealing our culture and they're erasing our, our ways and they're invading and blah, 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 blah. These are appeals to compassion to some extent, um, compassion for white people that have white culture or Western culture or whatever. That so it's more an appeal to fear, but yeah, I get why I take your meaning. It's an emotional appeal is what you're telling me. 
Well, it's, I mean, you, you can argue it is, is, it is one of compassion, right? When you let certain types of immigrants go into countries and erase those cultures, um, you're, you're lacking compassion for the people that are already there, you know? Like, that's what, what those people would claim. Now, you might disagree yeah. with that because you personally find that to be incompassionate, uh, non-compassionate, uncompassionate. I would agree. However, those other people find those arguments to be highly compassionate. Um, compassionate is a very subjective emotion that hinges on a lot of other stuff, which is why I just totally avoid it. Um, that's why I, I like the fact that with my moral system, if I could get somebody to subscribe to it um, on its on its face, um, I, they could absolutely fucking hate every black person on the planet, but still want to maximize their outcomes because it would create such a better experience for themselves. Yeah. So again, I don't think it would work in the way that you're saying it would with regard to a, a racist. Uh, as, as I pointed out, the, the problem with racism is it literally distorts your thinking. So I don't think a racist would be capable of seeing the benefit um, as long as they are as heavily racist as they are. I think it would super depend on the type of conversation, but like, I mm -hmm. think that there are ways that you can like appeal to that racism, um, believe it or not, I think to get people to certain answers that just kind of make sense um, in terms of like, this is something that will benefit all of us, you know, um, like even for like when it comes to DACA kids, right? Mm -hmm. Do you really like the idea that we spent so much money educating all these kids and now we're going to send them back from Mexico to take them from us after we, right? Like these are arguments that I think are relatively effective on even a racist person. Um, and, and they look at that maximizing the outcomes of everybody there. Um, whereas like, yeah, but, but are to... they effective? Because think about it. Think about how many Republicans actually voted for DACA. These seem to be arguments that Democrats and progressives think will move people on the right, but they don't seem to actually move people on the right. I mean, I don't have an international platform by which I can talk to every single Republican, but I would, I think that I would have an easier time. Um, and I, I guess I can cite myself. I mean, I de-radicalized quite a bit of people on the right and the left. Um, so I think that I would argue that my arguments are relatively convincing, even for people that disagree with me, um, but I will say for sure that arguments that just demand compassion or empathy, I would say are wholly ineffective because they seem to be completely incapable of penetrating somebody that just doesn't have empathy or compassion for a certain group of people. Sure, but I'll point out, do you, do you seem to see the problem when you're making moral arguments um, and you're making them as if you're talking to a robot? Like, well, it, depend, it really, really depends mm -hmm. on like who I'm talking to or what type of argument I'm making. So within the context of this conversation, we are having a robotic debate on, on morality, right? This is literally just a, a, an, a framework, like a system that we're having an, a conversation on. Um, none of this is supposed to be like rhetorically effective. Um, I'm not like deploying logos, pathos, or ethos <laughs> to try to convince you of one thing or another. We're literally right. just in my mind, we're just running through the logic to see if it works. Um, we're testing this theory for validity and soundness is what I'm doing. If I was having an argument where I was trying to convince somebody of something, um, then I would employ different rhetorical tools depending on the person in order to make them believe what I want them to believe. But that's not what we're doing right now. So yeah, of course. Okay. That's not how I'm interpreting the, the conversation, but also again, um, I, I, this, this is, this is the fascinating look into your mind. Actually. Or wait, what do you mean by when you say that's see. not how you're interpreting this? Well, I mean, well, again, I don't think you can, I don't think you can ever take logos, pathos, and ethos out of an argument. You can never just focus on like the nuts and bolts of it because humans are not, um, we're not robots specifically. Well, yeah. So the reason why yeah. I would say this is because I don't think I have tried to convince you of my system at all. I've merely 
uh, provided my system as is. I've tried to support my system as is, and then I've tried to defend it from any attacks. But I haven't made yeah. any claims that you should believe my system, and I'm not attacking you or your credibility or any system that you've put out there. Um, I'm just asking a few questions to defend my own. Um, whether or not we want to call it rhetorical or not, I, I guess we could say everything. If you want to argue, we could say everything is slightly rhetorical by just practicing pure logic. You could argue that you're doing an exercise in logos. But my goal here isn't really to convince or persuade anybody. I'm just demonstrating my system and then defending it from attacks. Yeah. Okay. It's my goal. Uh, my, yeah. I mean, my goal, I think, is I would say it's not so much to convince or persuade. I don't expect you to come in and agree with everything that I have to say right now. I would like to influence you dialectically in the sense that hopefully from this conversation, you may be more effective in dealing with um, certain people and may be able to avoid certain pitfalls when talking about morality. That's one of the reasons I, I wanted to have this conversation because you know, you're know you a very famous person and you have a, a very large reach. And, sure, and I can know, understand that, but there's so there's like three potential ways to do this. So um, two of these ways would be attacking my system. So one is to show a contradiction. Hey, if you believe this thing, you can't also believe this thing. Now everything falls apart. That would be one way to do it. The second thing is to yeah. say, hey, from these axioms, I can generate this conclusion, and I bet you don't like that conclusion. And if there, so, mm -hmm. if you could show me, for instance, that like you know, using your system, you know, like child rape all of a sudden becomes permissible, then I'd be like. Hmm, okay, I don't really like that. Fuck, now I have to reconsider, right? <laughs> so if you can either demonstrate yeah. a contradiction or illustrate a conclusion that I just at least intuitively dislike, then that would cause a reformation of my system. And then for the third thing, in terms of like rhetorical strategy for fighting people, um, I guess I would need like examples of or uh, a conversation that I've participated in where it seems like I was just unable to communicate said moral values um, mm -hmm. to a person, which I feel like doesn't really happen. I feel like I'm pretty able to communicate my moral system pretty effectively. Um, it's very rare that I actually have an ethics debate with somebody. Usually my, my debate are about policy or mm -hmm. about fucking internet videos, but it's very rare that I get into an actual ethics conversation with anybody. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you on this. Like a lot of the time when I'd watched your stuff and, and we're getting off topic for the, for the debate right now, but a lot of times when I watched your stuff, I either had trouble finding stuff that I disagreed with um, or um, it was something that you'd already argued uh, to death. So again, that was one of the reasons why I was so eager to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, this is this is really fascinating though to see what arguments uh, you personally find uh, very persuasive. Um, so it seems to me like the ones that you're particularly persuaded by are um, uh, what was uh, ad absurdum arguments, which is a good one. That's very very persuasive one, and um, you also uh, really don't like. Um, finding, uh, uh, I don't know the, I can't think of the Latin term for this, but basically you really don't like contradictions. <laughs> yeah, so I would um, call that, I would just call that term logic because all <laughs> systems of logic rely on non-contradiction. Mm -hmm. My understanding is aside from some very exotic forms of paraconsistent logics or something, like, like nobody yeah. in any discipline whatsoever will accept any sort of contradiction. It's just, if the contradiction yeah, exists, then we seek to resolve that immediately. Because again, through logical contradiction, at least on paper, we can literally prove or disprove any idea whatsoever. Sure. Um, I, I will just say to a certain, I think that works in a lot of situations, but again, at certain levels, it breaks down. Um, and also don't, don't forget that like the first time I got really familiar with somebody talking like really specifically about like the law of non-contradiction, it's a preacher trying to, to trick me into becoming a Christian again. You know, there's Wait, a, how is that supposed to be a compelling that, argument? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, It's supposed to be a compelling argument. Like, but I don't know. I, I guess different people respond to uh, different arguments in a different way. And, you know, you have spent a lot of time dealing like 
arguing with fascists. And uh, I would say you've been very, very effective in, in that. Um, so, uh, you know, thank you for your service there. Um, I will also point out, however, that fascists make up a very, very tiny part of your audience. And at least in my experience, it's very difficult to have any moral system without a, a component of compassion in much the same way that the golden rule which was developed by Bronze Age desert nomads, you know, is still a superior system to say, um, you know, uh, the the non-aggression principle, the NAP. Yeah, but the and problem is that, like, even fa fascists will argue that leftists lack compassion. The same way that leftists argue fascists lack compassion. So, like, yeah. uh, compassion just doesn't get anything off the ground. It's that's like so down the road from any like any moral system. I just don't know how, like, any. I mean, but yeah, but be. you notice you're choosing two groups of very committed radicals. Literally um, every, any type of compassion can be weaponized or used in a certain way or will be wholly subjective sure. on some individual. Like, I, But anything can be weaponized in any way in much the same way that. Um, I'm okay with somebody you know. weaponizing logic. <laughs> if you want to <laughs> give me a logically consistent statement, like I'll listen. Yeah. Um, it's not going to rely on me already. The problem is that compassion oftentimes, in my opinion, um, arguing via compassion unless we're going to go the hardcore propaganda route and like show you videos of like dying horses or something to make you a vegan, right? Compassion oftentimes is just begging the question. It's the reason why I like avoiding compassion so much. Wait, how, how, how is it begging the question? Begging the question is assuming the um, answer in the formulation of the question. For Exactly. So for instance, if I say like, don't you have compassion for illegal immigrants? Like they're people just like you, right? Well, mm -hmm. if somebody believed this, that they were people just like us and they deserve to think, well, then of course they would have compassion for them, right? That any compassion argument is almost necessarily circular because the person making the appeal to compassion already has the compassion for those groups of people. And the people they're arguing with probably already doesn't have that compassion. That's why I don't, I just typically mm -hmm. don't like compassion as an argument. So when I debate against Republicans or, you, or conservatives for immigration- Do you wonder if, if I may, um, do you wonder if maybe a bit of your um, distaste for it is grounded in the fact that you're a dude who was brought up in the same society I was, and we're taught not to express our feelings. I, that, I don't know how that's a reaction to anything I've said. No, what, what I'm saying is, is I, I feel like the, cause it, it seems to me that, um, your distaste for compassion and your distaste for connecting with somebody else emotionally um, may be less reasonable than you think it is. Um, I'm not going to say that it wouldn't be effective tactics because also you're dealing with other dudes who were brought up in our society. So you, you try to talk about compassion to a neo-Nazi, they will laugh at you for your weakness because they're afraid to show that kind of emotion. In, but they, they are comfortable being manipulated by their emotions in other ways because usually it deals with aspects of like toxic masculinity where they uh, the only emotions that they allow themselves to feel are like anger and um, self-righteousness because these are manly masculine powerful emotions and so like they're very uh, um, they're very persuaded by those kinds of arguments and will reject out of hand um, arguments that are couched in compassion because they see it as as more feminine and weak. Um, but I don't think your average person that you're talking to is somebody who's that far gone. Um, and I I'm not think saying, that, I'm not trying to make a state. I, I don't know how any of that connects mm -hmm. to anything. I don't, I'm not trying to make a statement on like whether or not we should or shouldn't be like, it'd be great if everybody was compassionate. But what I'm mm -hmm. saying is that if somebody already had compassion for a certain group of people, 
probably wouldn't have to argue with them much about how they treat that group of people. It's hard for me to imagine that there exists some person that has a lot of compassion for Hispanic people that is anti-DACA, pro the wall, anti-all immigration, like wants to kick all the, like it's hard for me to imagine that person has compassion for that group. If they did, they would probably already be on the same side. Sure. Um, and you would need to, essentially that what, what the person is, is that they have a very small circle of what they consider people worthy of compassion. And they've, those, they could, they're okay with doing that to the DACA kids because they view them as outsiders and therefore- Yeah, that's my issue is that compassion country. seems to be something that we dole out. We don't dole that out indiscriminately. It seems like there is a lot of qualifiers to that. So for instance, like a lefty might not have as much compassion for a wealthy white kid that commits suicide or something because they're like, yeah. oh, well, this guy's material conditions were so good, blah, blah, blah. Or a fascist might not be okay with like an outsider's, you know, bad living conditions. Like, oh, they shouldn't have been here anyway, right? Yeah. Like, and for the record though, I do have compassion for a rich person that commits suicide i mean again this is a buddhist thing but we sure, actually i wasn't do, i wasn't bringing up yeah. you i i don't yeah. i actually don't even know if you're lefty or not i'm not bringing up yours i'm just saying that in general i'm saying that we can have a lack of or a a amount of compassion for widely different groups of people depending on where we come from that's why i just don't appeal to compassion sure but but if you're setting up a system that you're arguing that other people should embrace mm -hmm. um one of the major issues is that compassion is important in making those same moral judgments. So, well, that's what I'm, but I'm, what I'm arguing is for you to make that statement. I can't just assume that's going to be true. You have to demonstrate to me what, like, you have to demonstrate to me what conclusion would I want to arrive at that I can't arrive at with my moral system that I need sure. that I need a compassion to get to. And I don't know well, if to, I need to, compassion to get to anything of this. Yeah. So, so I mean, both. I have an example that I can go that I started to go into, and then I can see if I can attach it to your actual argument. Maybe we can continue this afterwards because I'm actually really enjoying this. But um, so essentially, um, with regard to compassion, there that compassion is the reason that the um, golden rule is a better moral system, a better moral heuristic than the than the non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle simply says, do not be aggressive, essentially. Um, and it ignores a number of big problems. For instance, oftentimes, both parties claim self-defense and both are actually right. A great example being like Israel and Gaza. Um, so you, you can't take the NAP and go and solve that problem with the NAP. The issue with, and there are problems with the golden rule, but treat other people as you would like to be treated, or the 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 Confucius version of that, which is don't treat others the way um, you wouldn't want to be treated. Yeah, so I think that I think that even that rule fails fundamentally. I, I wouldn't agree with the golden yeah. rule. Well, yeah, I'm not saying it, it fails, and we, we can go into maybe why it fails. Well, I would I would argue that it fails because of the lack because it relies on some kind of compassion, and I would argue that that compassion <laughs> is subjective. So two really great examples of this is I would like to be treated, I treat others as they'd like to be treated. A white person in the 1700s might say mm -hmm. like, oh, well, if I was a black person, I would understand it's my place to be a slave. Like, of course. So like I should be treated in this particular way. Or for a man and a woman who believe where man says woman is subservient to man, right? A man might say like, oh, well, if I was a woman, I would want to be treated as though I'm subservient because that's my job as a woman, right? That's like- Sure. A, and kind of obviously it can go wrong. And those are ways people can think themselves around the problem. Well, you say um, go wrong- but I'd like to be clear, these haven't gone wrong at all. They're just using compassion in different ways than you are, which is why, again, why I don't like compassion. I don't think it's gone wrong. I think they're all using compassion just in ways that we would disagree with. No, I don't think they're using compassion at all in that sense. What I think they're doing is they're projecting their own wants 
onto um, that person in an effort to excuse what they already want to do. If you're engaging in compassion and empathy, what's happening is, is that you are actually taking the action of putting yourself into somebody else's head, seeing the world through their um, uh, point of view. And certain people are better at it and men are highly discouraged from ever doing it. Um, but you know, it's, it's essentially compassion might be the reason why if I was trying to persuade you specifically, if I was a, the more I am able to project myself and see the world through the eyes of destiny, I will then know what, um, you know, what arguments are going to be most, uh, effective for you. Um, it's the difference between like compassion and empathy as a difference between like, um, I guess more emotional caring instincts. It's like what you're giving me essentially is, is it's the monkey lifting the fish out of the water saying like, um, you know, uh, oh, get out of there or you'll drown and putting it safely up a tree. The monkey's doing what's good for the monkey, but it doesn't have compassion. It doesn't have empathy. It doesn't understand. It wants to help the fish, but it doesn't really understand the fish because it's incapable of putting itself into the fish's mind and the fish's body to a certain extent. And I think that as a result, that evolved ability of humans to be compassionate towards others and to place ourselves into the shoes of other beings to the point to where some people like throw out their old Game Boy and feel bad about it, even though the Game Boy has no feelings. I think that is one of the key uh, evolutionary strengths and abilities that we have. And I think it's also really important for debate and rhetoric. So, yeah, so I don't necessarily disagree, but again, I'm going to argue that I, I would say that you're talking around this a lot in that mm-hmm. all of your, every single statement you're here is, 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 I think, begging the question. I think it all presupposes what a person means. Like, for instance, so when you say like, first of all, we have to acknowledge we can never truly see through the eyes of another person. That's literally impossible. Certainly when we not. say that, what we really mean is we're trying to assume as many situations are ahead so we can write, but it might be fully possible that a racist man says, I totally see life through the eyes of a black person. I consider myself to be inferior to the white man. And yeah, if I'm a slave, you know, that's just the natural world that God's given me to fill. And that person could be exercising compassion. Now you disagree (laughs) from your perspective, but he would say you suck at it and you have no way to argue with each other. That's my point. Mm -hmm. Your your, your two views are are incommensurate with one another. You have no way of communicating past your disagreements of compassion. Whereas I would argue that with my system, at the very least, now rhetorically, I would approach it differently, but if we were to just sit down and write it out, I would win a debate logics against him. I would say, well, for my position, I think that I can demonstrate better worlds for both of you that you could both exist in. Um, whereas for anyone else to rely on compassion, the other guy would be like, oh, I have compassion for people just as God intends to. And blacks are here to serve whites. That's my compassion. Mm-hmm. Right. And but, you would just be yeah. totally lost. You'd have no way to communicate with that person. Well, again, I, I don't think people are primarily motivated by logic. Like we, it's, a I big agree with that. That's it. not yeah. relevant to what we're saying, but I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I guess what I'm talking about, though, as far as like any moral system that you have, I feel like if you completely remove compassion from the system itself, you can often get yourself into very serious problems. And, you know, one a big one that I had was um, in one of your videos, you mentioned that like if somebody was going into your backyard like an angry old man, has got a shotgun, says to the person, you know, don't come into my backyard or I'll shoot you. Mm-hmm. And then the person comes in again and that th- 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 the old man would be justified in shooting him. And I feel like that's the kind of conclusion one can come to 
if they have a uh, moral system in which compassion does not fa- factor in. Yeah, but the problem is, is that I could I could weaponize compassion to literally argue both ends of that conversation. I could sure, say but- we ought to have compassion for the person that hops over the fence and goes to the yards. You might have a number of reasons to do so. Like it would be ridiculous to condemn this person to death or to punish this guy when he's just a guy that wants to wander through yards. And then much the same on the other end as conservative, I could weaponize compassion and argue it's crazy that we would expect this man who owns some piece of property, literally like a cornerstone of the American American dream to have a piece of land that you call your own in the United States mm-hmm. to subject himself to the intrusion of another person repeatedly over and over again without him being able to exercise his most fundamental right and just protecting his small corner of the world that he calls his own, right? I can use compassion on either end of that argument, and this is why compassion just doesn't right. work as a but, motivator. But the moral argument. system isn't being used by someone outside of this. It's being used by the people within the actual disagreement. Sure, so regardless of who's system- utilizing a particular moral system, I'm just saying that compassion yeah. there can argue. I can literally, I can literally, you can give me any possible problem you want, hypothetically or not, and I could show you how you could use compassion to argue both ends of that, which are sure. wholly unsatisfying to me. Whereas I think on my moral system, if you give but, me any question, I can show you, I can demonstrate what I would say should be right or wrong in every circumstance, mm-hmm. not from both ends, but I should be able to determine somebody who is more morally in the right versus somebody who's morally in the wrong. I mean, you may be able to do that, but uh, again, I think the, the point here is that it's important when people are making moral decisions and trying to use a system to make moral decisions that they actually engage their empathy to a certain extent for the person that they are dealing with. Yeah, but um, then I just I just demonstrated to you that like I think you can use that compassion in ways that yeah, like, but you you, you can use life. you can literally weaponize absolutely anything. You can weaponize. Then I would it. ask you to demonstrate that. That's so that was one of the two initial <laughs> points I gave you. If you can uh-huh. show me so either one is a contradiction or two, mm-hmm. if you can demonstrate to me a conclusion that I intuitively just don't like that stems logically from my moral system, then it would force mm-hmm. me to reconsider. Okay, can you give me an example? Well, no, if I had an example, yeah. I wouldn't follow my moral system. Of course not. I don't believe that there are That's any funny. more examples that, that cause either a contradiction to appear in any of my fundamental beliefs or, mm-hmm. or generate like some belief that I don't like. I will admit that I get a little bit uncomfortable at the extreme ends of my hypothetical system. So for instance, mm-hmm. when we talk about like stealing a blade of grass from somebody's yard when they've been put on notice, there might be like extreme ends. In it, but for like 99% of cases, I'm okay. And for those extreme ends that I get a little bit uncomfortable for, I would be more uncomfortable with the extreme ends of a country contradictory system. For instance, one that would let you to infinitely steal small amounts of property from another person that should never be able to, <laughs> right? So yeah. yeah, so like, yeah, so I, I would just need, like, that's why I gave the example earlier. If you could demonstrate to me that like, oh, well, if you say that this is true, guess what? If you, you know, right? Uh, so let's say that I assume all of your actions are, are true, okay? Mm-hmm. Here's premise, 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 and then conclusion, you should be able to murder somebody to steal their belt, or you should be able to kill a child to steal their kidney or whatever, right? If you could demonstrate something like that, like, okay, yeah, sure. That does logically follow from my, um, from, from my axioms, right? So if if you can demonstrate to me a valid argument that I don't like, then you're attacking the mm-hmm. soundness of my argument because I wouldn't be forced to change a premise or abandon my structure or system. Okay. So, so for instance, we'll do the, the blade of grass, or I think as, you, as you've fa- faced it, like the stick of gum, um, mm-hmm. essentially. I mean, I think the, there's a number of huge practical problems that come with that, um, namely um, the fact that you're justifying essentially infinite aggression against someone for something that's simply not worth it. Just simply because- Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, wait, we have to be really, okay. So I'm going to challenge you to be incredibly precise with your language. I'm not going to let you say something like, it's not worth it. You're going to have to define what that worth is. You're going to have to be very precise here if you say, it's not worth it to do that when we're having like moral arguments, I would say. I'm saying there there is no proportionality in, um, if someone- Does there need to be proportionality when you're defending yourself from an aggressor? Yes, Do you think murder is as bad as sexual assault? 
I think murder is worse. Okay. Do you think that if a woman is about to be sexually assaulted by a man and the only way she can defend herself is by murdering the person or killing them, do you think mm-hmm. that's acceptable or should she allow herself to be assaulted? I think that um, it would be acceptable in the sense that because she doesn't know what else that person is going to do. Let's to say her. that she knew 1 million percent. It was a person that he, he actually says it and he says he commits mm-hmm. himself. He's a logical <laughs> machine. He's been, she's cursed him with a genius curse. This man can never tell a lie. Um, <laughs> so this magical like, man that doesn't exist. Yeah, okay. liar, liar. Yeah, he comes mm-hmm. at her and he says, hey, like I'm going to sexually assault you, um, but I swear to God, I'm not going to murder you. I'm not going to harm you or any other way. Like I'm just going to do this. Is she forced to submit herself to that because she can't proportionally respond? So I'm not going to answer for a woman on this because I don't know what women deal with, but I can't. Okay, for a man. Yeah, well, I'll answer for myself. And no, 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 wait, wait. I don't accept an answer for yourself because I don't care because now we're moving away from a moral framework to, well, what would I personally do? Which is, remember, earlier in Mm -hmm. this debate, we are separating out behavior from systems of ethics, right? I don't care about, like, an individual's behavior. For instance, I would probably never kill somebody that would steal almost anything of mine because I'm wealthy. I can just replace it. I don't give a fuck. Even if I subscribe to a moral system where I say, well, maybe I have the right to do this, I would never do it because it's just not worth the trouble. Even in the legal system, none of that is worth it. Um, So I'm not talking about your personal behavior. What I'm, all I'm getting. So I'm going. This is what I'm going to say. I don't think the. I don't think someone um, who is raped is justified in killing. I would understand if they did. I wouldn't condemn them. But I don't think it's. If you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you will not die, you will only you know be violated for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. Then killing to prevent that. I think is is a greater wrong. I think is out of proportion. Now that does gotcha. not okay. mean that you can't fight back. That does not mean that you cannot injure them. Well, but um, you might mean incur you further cannot... damage to yourself by doing yeah. that. But so, well, like, yeah. So that's yeah. like a type of conclusion. I so mm-hmm. I wholesale reject that. Mm-hmm. I would not place that moral responsibility on a person that's being aggressed on by on a victim. I wouldn't argue that a victim can only respond proportionally to somebody else that's violating their autonomy. That's like a conclusion that I just wholesale reject. So you know, I feel I, mean, I feel like you're I feel like you're unfairly and ironically you're unfairly uh, appealing to compassion there. Um, no, they, actually. So, when, when, so again, if if I ever make a moral statement, I mm-hmm. will run it all the way back. So we can run this all the way back to to my moral system. Okay. So, so wait, 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 hang on. Wait, no, no, wait, 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 hold on. I have to respond yeah. because you just accused me of okay. basically just word vomiting out like some appeal to emotion. I'm not. So morally, I exist. I have an mm-hmm. experience, and I want to maximize my experience. Okay. okay? Other people exist. They have an experience and they want to maximize their experience. Part of me maximizing my experience is not being raped, okay, or being sexually assaulted, okay? Mm-hmm. So on the other system, humans synergize to create a better experience. And if I help others maximize their experience, they will help me. Assuming we all share moral systems, we will all synergize with each other. If this person is trying to violate my autonomy, they've demonstrated to me that they fail to adhere to those three principles. They're not worried about mm-hmm. the synergism of humans working together. They're not trying to maximize other people to help their experience. And they're not sharing a moral system with me where we synergize each other's experience. So I can go ahead and exclude them from my moral system and I would be able to practice some form of lethal self-defense if I needed to because of their rejection of my moral system. Yeah. Nothing so, that so I've said here whatsoever requires any uh, appeal to compassion yeah. or any anything like that. This fully follows, I believe, from my, from my moral axioms. Well, uh, okay, but again, you didn't use that 
exact argument. You you specifically went and appealed like to the situation of the victim when you made that argument, and the fact that it w- it was as strong and as charged an argument you like as it was is because inherently compassion for the victim comes into the uh, comes into the equation. I'm now, not even. I, th- well, I don't is, care about compassion. If I'm just, someone I'm just... if someone demonstrates that they are not um, functioning within your system. Um, again, I don't think that just because they have rejected the social construct that you have projected onto the world through these logical suppositions, uh, I don't think that means that you are justified in ending their life, it, even if they are violating that. Um, there, there was a great debate actually. Well, hold on, on to be clear, just night. to be ultra, ultra, mm-hmm. ultra, ultra, ultra clear, okay? I'm not saying, I'm not arguing whether or not you should or shouldn't kill somebody. That was the example I used, but that's not what I'm arguing. What I'm arguing against is you seemed to give me this, this qualifier saying that if you respond to something, it must be proportional. I disagree mm-hmm. with that. And I think that most people intuitively would also disagree with that, even if they haven't explored their fundamental moral system. I think that most people intuitively would not agree that, all, that these types of um, responses need to be proportional. I would argue intuitively, most people feel as though the aggressor probably deserves some level of disproportionate response. Oh, I'm going to disagree entirely. Our, 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 our whole justice system is based on the idea of proportionality. When I'm um, not talking about, I'm not talking about justice system in terms of, uh, in terms of like retribution or in terms of like rehabilitation or any of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about justice. I'm talking about the prevention of like somebody doing something to you. That if somebody is coming to you to do a particular bad action, if somebody's aggressing against you, mm-hmm. you don't have an obligation to respond proportionally, and you should be able to do whatever you need to keep yourself safe. I think any world that uses that as their ethic is going to wind up with a bunch of people being killed who done, didn't otherwise need to be killed. Like, okay, and I will argue that your system will end up with a bunch of people, you know, killing and sexually assaulting people because they know that they're not going to be punished heavily for it. If they, if the person they're attacking is sufficiently small enough or disarmed, then they know that nothing really bad is going to happen to them. Look, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say right off the bat, um, mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a very limited way of looking at this. We also know that stuff like, for instance, the death penalty is not a deterrent. Death so, penalty is not talking about the prevention of a crime. That's the punishment of a crime. I'm, I'm, with my form of justice, I, believe, I don't believe in retribution or justice at all. I only believe in rehabilitation. That's something completely separate. I'm talking about looking at somebody. Um, we can call it the nap if we want, the non-aggression principle or whatever. I'm talking about if you have a victim or a potential victim, if you've got somebody being aggressed on by another person, that person can respond with whatever means necessary to protect themselves from being aggressed on. They don't have an obligation to meet it with proportional force. They, only ha- they should be able to do whatever they need to keep themselves safe. Yeah, I think... I- I think that this has very serious implications um, with regard, like if we, if we take that as our operating principle, you essentially um, allow infinite uh, retribution for any perceived uh, crime. To be clear, one more time, I'm not talking about after the fact, I'm not talking about retribution. I'm talking about prevention. Okay. So any level of force Mm -hmm. is be, so um, again, let, let's take Israel and Gaza. A couple rockets get fired into Israel. Uh, nobody dies, or maybe there's some uh, stuff. So then okay. the IDF comes back and blows up a bunch of No, no, of no, hostages. that's retribution. I'm not talking about retribution. So for instance, let's say somebody sexually is coming to sexually assault you, okay? Mm-hmm. I would say if the only way that victim can protect themselves is with lethal force, they can kill the person. But okay. if that person sexually assaults them, then walks away. I don't think you can kill the person then in retribution. That's a different. So that's a totally different. Let, let's go for. But let's go for the line then. Not we. We don't need to use sexual assault. Let's go down to that. Someone's coming at you to take your wallet. Okay. You can kill them over the wallet. Um, if you tell them not to, if they're going to aggress on you, and if you want to defend that wallet, yeah, I think so. 
okay, so why why is their life worth like your wallet? Your wallets, you've got- You'd have to ask the aggressor. They're the one making that decision. No, they're not making the decision to die. They're making the decision to violently ask for your wallet. If they violently ask for your wallet and you tell them, if you come any closer to me, I'm going to kill you. They're making the decision to exchange their life there. No one would necessarily believe that because people say, I'm going to kill you all the time and they don't mean it. Well, or that they sounds like their problem. Why, did they, the why did they feel like it was worth taking the risk? Um, again, I don't think people think through it that much. I don't think that- uh, Okay, that might be like, true, but I'm not going to place the onus on the victim to determine the mental state of the aggressor. I don't think that's a victim's responsibility. I'm not doing, you know, again, the issue, I wouldn't put the onus on the victim either. But you are. Because, no, no, keep in mind- They're hardcore I, restricting what they can do to, to protect- I, I absolutely am not, because again, they don't know what's going to happen. Well, so, so then it sounds like in practice, your system would collapse into mine anyways. So a woman is holding onto a purse. A guy comes and says, I'm going to steal your purse. It sounds like what I would say is she can defend it with lethal force. And then what you would say is, well, she can't defend her purse with lethal force, but she doesn't know if the guy is going to kill her. So she can defend her purse with lethal force in all applicable situations anyway, because she can never determine if he's going to attack her or not. These would be very similar situations, I grant you. But the, the fact is, is that the undergirding, the, what seems to undergird your end of it mm-hmm. is... The problem is a person is not upholding their end of the social con- con- uh, contract, and therefore they make themselves fair game for any level of violence against them. Well, um, preventative am, violence, but yeah. Yeah, I, I'm rejecting the idea that, because one, as far as the social contract goes, I mean, I don't know about you, I didn't sign shit. Um, and nobody I think you do. I think you're. In, I think you're compelled to, so long as you participate and reap the rewards of society. I think sure, you necessarily but have to buy to, into, right? If you're compelled into a contract, then it's the contract itself is null and void. Absolutely so, not. I, I, as long as you continue to reap the rewards of said contract, you are compelled by force to mm-hmm. uh, to adhere to that contract. So, so for instance, th- when the federal that's government- very, com- That's a very Hobbesian way of, of looking at it. It may or may not be, but if the federal government comes to me and they say, you need to pay taxes, I go, huh, well, I didn't consent to any taxes in this system. Well, of course not. I, but I live in a society where I reap the rewards and benefits of all the systems that the government has created around me. So if I'm going to continue to reap the rewards of living in said system, then I need to do whatever that system demands or compels me to contribute back to that system, such so, as paying my taxes. Yeah. So, so I'm going to disagree with that fundamentally. Um, I think that, you know, and, and I will go as far as to say, yeah, they're right when they say taxation is theft. Property is theft. All property is theft, but taxation is as well. Now, do they get a say in it? No, because guess what? The state controls everything. And, you know, if you don't want something worse to happen, you might as well pay your taxes. I also think that taxes are good generally. And it's actually better that we are compelled to pay them than they wouldn't be. Because if you look at like failed states in um, Latin America, the voluntary taxation ironically makes the government worse. Wait, how do we say that involuntary is, taxation? How can you have a position where you say theft is good? Um, theft is not so, what, oh, what, why theft is good? Because theft is opinion. It's not, it's not, theft is completely subjective. Like, if what do we, somebody, well, yeah, okay, wait, let's just go there. What do you, how, how do you define theft? What is theft to you? I mean, theft is the unlawful or, wait, uh, I ignore, I'm only talking some property. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you're begging the question. Theft yeah. is the immoral taking of some property. Why is it immoral? That's what I'm asking for. Well, that because that's the definition of theft. Well, but as no, no, far no. as why is theft immoral? There might, or do you have a reason why you feel that theft is immoral? I the only thing that I could say I would personally speaking for me, uh, I would say theft is immoral because it harms the person having something stolen from them. 
in, in ways that um, it, not just being deprived of the property, but also the psychological harm of being put in that situation. So is that um, only immoral in cases then where it harms the other person or? I mean, arguably, yeah, pretty much. If it doesn't harm anybody, I don't see it being immoral. Um, okay. But just for, I guess, for, for the record, so I would consider theft to be taking something by which someone else has the right to without yeah. their consent. That's what I would sure. say. That, that, that's, a, that's a perfectly fair definition. The issue is, is that it's entirely well, but, subjective who has a right to what. Like, Well, but I wouldn't say that. So, for instance, in society, right, money is literally created by the government. The government, through, yeah. its, through democratic means, has processed an established process by which they have the right to collect taxes. So when the government comes to me to, quote, unquote, steal my money, it's not theft at all. The government has a right to that money because the government has laws by which it can collect, it can levy taxes against me and collect taxes from me. So I can't call that theft. It's not right. taking something. Uh, that right. But the only reason the government has the power to do any of that is it conquered this territory with its military and is no. able to. The reason why oh, it has yeah, the right absolutely. to do that is because it provides services and everything to me, because I exist in a society uh, where I have that agreement set up with the government. I exist. We, in we should society. definitely argue about the state sometime because this was this is great. But I, I will say that the the fact that it provides services is simply to make it more, appear um, more justified and therefore maintain its uh, monopoly on the justified use of force. I think the force came first and the um, services came later. And I think historically, we've also seen that. Um, now, again, I don't think it's, it's bad. I like that the government provides services. I think it should provide more services. But at the same time, I don't think that the states, the fact that the state conquered a territory and it, it is, it's and its laws are based on violence and I understand the, all, regardless uh, of any of that, I think I just the foundation just doesn't matter. I would argue that if you exist in some state and you withhold paying your taxes, I would argue that you're the one stealing. Like mm -hmm. you're the one that's committed theft at that point because you're agree, you're existing in some system where everybody has some buy-in. Like for instance, yeah, boom. I, okay, I, well, I, wait, I, wait, 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 just yeah. crazy mm -hmm. other. Let's say that there exists some commune. And mm -hmm. these people all collectively have like, um, fucking, we'll say it's a goddamn para, a para-econ commune, okay? Where these people oh. run a farm, they've doled out their responsibilities to everybody, they have divvied out all of their um, high, um, all of their, um, oh God, what was the word Michael Albert used? For work that is fulfilling, for work that is... Um, uh, oh, uh, but, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Onerous work. Onerous work. Uh, the onerous work, and then the there's like a high fulfillment work. Fuck, I don't remember what it is. But there, some work is very fulfilling, some work is not fulfilling. They've doled it all out, they've created a commune. Let's say that somebody else moves in next to that commune. Mm -hmm. Oh, empowering work. Yeah. Somebody moves in next to the commune and they see that there's like a whole bunch of fruit that exists there. Well, let's say they move in, they set up like their little house and everything and they're cool. And let's say that they just walk over every day and they start picking some of those fruits. I think that the people in that uh, in that commune can look at that person and say like, wait, what the fuck? You're literally stealing from us. What do you mean? The guy's like, well, no, it's fruit. It exists in the land. It's like, well, now hold on. All of us are allowed to take of those fruits because we all have a shared agreement with one another that allows us to, you know, put in some amount of work in society and then reap some benefit from society. You can't come and just reap the benefits of society without putting anything in. That's not fair. That's not part of the agreement that we have here. Yeah. Well, what you're essentially saying is, is that the ownership there is generated by possession and use, which, um, by the way, most anarchists myself would agree in a human term. However, let's just zoom that out a little bit and imagine an alien race came here and watched that happen. They don't know anything about human um, custom with regards to what belongs to one person and what doesn't. All they see is, oh, those people are eating the apples and now that other, that other human is eating the apples. Interesting. Because again, theft is subjective. It, it, it doesn't 
exist within reality. It only exists within human, within I mean, like, human minds. It super depends on how we define that because we might be able to, to, to really ground that out in some yeah. physics well, well, argument. Uh, like, oh, yeah. wow, interesting. Some creatures have expended some amount of necessary energy mm-hmm. to uh, create some structure. And now another creature that hasn't invested any energy to the creation of that structure is now partaking in it. I, like, there are, I'm sure that there are ways that we can make alien creatures understand theft. Well, um, not even just alien all energy- creatures. I mean, think about um, the squirrel stores up a bunch of nuts and then a freaking uh, squirrel or another mouse finds the store and eats a large portion. Squirrel probably considered that theft. They're not going to share that, right? They're not going to share it, but I don't. But a squirrel doesn't really have a concept of theft. Well, maybe not. Sure, but I mean, we would say it's the squirrel now. But again, we're not squirrels aren't moral agents. I guess we're not putting them on the same. Yeah. So because morality is a human thing and applies strictly to humans. So as I'm saying, theft is objectively the same. Property is theft. Having something be your property and having something stolen from a uh, objective standpoint is exactly the same thing. These are dependently originant concepts because they both arise within the human mind as opposed to within nature. Okay, I don't necessarily disagree, but awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was fascinating. What the, what the hell are we talking about again? James, uh, well, this we, all are, came from the proportionality conversation. But, the, yeah. yeah, the proportionality. Con- I, I guess what where I'm are saying we at, is- James? It, yeah, where are we at? Are we- Amazing. I kind of want to dive into the proportionality, but are you okay with the Q and A, or do you want to you want to jump um, into whatever that? you want to do? I'm just chilling. I already ate yeah. my pizza, so I'm good to go for the next <laughs> six hours. I was a little worried you were going to show up with a pizza. <laughs> I ate beforehand. Yeah, it would have been it would have been funny. So, um, all right. Uh, so, as as far as the proportionality argument goes, I would say that humans have a basic need for justice and for things to be proportional. There's rational reasons why they why proportionality should be taken into account um the other reasons are one if you justify infinite aggression against someone um because they violated some social uh more more to be clear i am not this is not my position at all there's a very clear difference between the prevention of aggression and the punishment or the retribution of aggression okay i don't believe in punishment or retribution or justice i don't i I throw all of those concepts out i think they're all silly i only am talking about the prevention of somebody violating you or your autonomy okay so it's purely in the prevention um i think that by again justifying infinite violence within the context of preventing something negative from happening to a person by Mm -hmm. someone who has violated the social contract. I think what you're opening the door for is for a lot of one, a lot of people being killed by accident because they're what's happening was misinterpreted. And we, we see that. And I think you're also opening the door for bad actors to specifically bait people into breaking the social cons contract specifically so they can kill them. Um, so for number one, I don't think that I, I think it's generally pretty clear when somebody's trying to steal your shit or threatens great bodily harm against you. Um, that for number two, I mean, there might be bad actors, but there can be bad actors with literally anything. Like everything yeah. can be bad actors, right? Yeah. I mean, so I was, uh, I was mugged. I was attacked and beaten in the face with a pistol by two guys. Uh, it hit me about five times. Um, I actually, and like dropped my keys, car door was open. They could have taken my car. They could have taken my keys. Um, the way I dealt with it, because at first I was about to start fighting them. And then I realized, oh no, that's a gun new plan. 
Um, and the way I dealt with it was I appealed to them on a personal level. In fact, I basically yelled at them like, you know, what the fuck, asshole? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? And this actually caused them to take a step back and to kind of realize, oh, I'm actually in this situation. They were younger than me when they attacked me. Eventually, they demanded money. Um, I had about $600 in my wallet, um, and I snaked my hand down, and they got 20 bucks, and that way I could still pay my rent the next day and ran off. And I've had conversations with a lot of people over this, and some people have been of the mind that, you know, oh, if you had a gun, you should have killed them. Um, and the thing is, is that I realized, one, in that situation, a gun actually wouldn't have helped because they totally had the drop on me. So they, if they, that, that gun had been loaded and I tried to draw on them, they would have shot me before I was able to. Um, but the other big issue of it is, is that, you know, these are two kids and they're making a mistake. Um, they got $20 from me. It's not really that big of a deal. They injured my face and I had some PTSD for about two to six months afterwards. But I also think back to what would have happened if, let's say, I had been armed and had killed them both. And what effect would that have had on their families and communities? How many people would go and suddenly their brother went out to hang out with his friend and he didn't come home? Um, you know, and ultimately, I would rather them get away with the $20 um, and have a chance at redemption later on and it realized what if they would have that killed what they did you. was wrong. Say what? What if they would have killed you? Well, exactly, but they didn't. Well, and but we can't argue from one example, right? Sure. Because I can right. literally make infinite moral arguments from one yeah. example. But what if they so, would have killed you? Would, yes. it, that, would, you, would you be in a completely different spot at this point where, because what you're arguing, I've heard a million conservatives argue from the opposite mm -hmm. end. Somebody tried to kill me. I had a gun. I pulled it out and I killed them. And thank God I'm alive today. My family's not deprived of my existence just because some robber wanted to mug me. Yeah. And, and it, which is why I say the, 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 you are authorized to deploy deadly force in situations where you being killed is a possibility as opposed to because you don't know if you might be killed or not. If I had drawn on them and I had killed the both of them, even though they maybe never would have killed me and maybe the gun wasn't even loaded, I would have been justified in that situation because of acting on the um, information that I had. However, acting purely on the fact that the social contract has been violated and that justifying the use of deadly force is something that I think uh, is, is, it's a subtle but very important distinction between our two approaches here. And I worry that yours uh, using simply the violation of the social contract is going to have a lot of really, really negative effects um, down the line, both for making the actual decision as to when you want to engage in that kind of thing and also um, for what effect it would have on the society overall. Yeah, sure. And I would argue the same, but I would just argue in reverse to yours. Like, I'm okay with people infinitely defending themselves from muggers. Um, I'm not okay with people being infinitely mugged. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, infinite mugging. <laughs> Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. Uh, just keep going back to that moment. That'd be horrific. Um, all right. So, James, I think, we're, I think we're, we've hit a point to agree to disagree. Do you want to move into the Q&A?
had myself on mute, and we're going to go into the Q&A. Thanks, everybody, for your questions. want to remind you, if you love long-form content, which you must <laughs> if you're still here, it's been a great one, want to let you know that we at Modern Day Debate are now on podcast. And so if that's useful, we hope that it is. And so pull out your phone, find your favorite podcast app, and find Modern Day Debate. As we've been encouraged, I always tell people, when I started, I was so afraid Nobody would use it, but I've been encouraged that people apparently have found it useful. You know, long drives, cleaning around the house, you name it. And so with that, thanks for your question. Thanks for your uh, compliment. Frankie Dryden says, Manny's. That's my girlfriend's nickname for me. Uh, Skinny Pete, thanks for your question. Says, is Destiny willing to debate Pogan on Marxism versus capitalism? Uh, I don't know who that is, but sure. Juicy. <laughs> and Benjamin Skills says, anybody, let's see. More, looking more for more serious questions. Robert Bates says, you're wrong. Girdle showed that any consistent system that can express specifically arithmetic must contain, or arithmetic, sorry, must contain true statements that cannot be proven. Yeah, that's both. It is both. So that that's just the positive way of saying the the other thing. But yes, the the implication from it containing true statements that cannot be proven also proves that uh, it can that any axiomatic mathematical system uh, contains both uh, or it's either incomplete or contradictory. No, I I just have to I just have to totally reject that. Just, just because something, just because there might be true statements, that's a non sequitur. Just because there might be true statements that can't be proven by some system does not mean the system necessarily contains contradictions. That yeah, just logically I mean, doesn't I, again, I take it up, and there's there's two. I'm sort of condensing because there's two separate incompleteness theorems. Um, so, but I, I would say the, it's how Godel proved it is is what he's referring to where um essentially what they found was they they made a statement that um was by definition like logical definition true um and uh unprovable and then expressed that statement as a number and or as an equation and thus i basically because they found this thing that uh, essentially was a statement that was both that had to be true and unprovable. Um, they knew that uh, essentially they had uh, what was either an incomplete system or a contradictory system from that. Um, so it, the, the, the one does flow from the other. It's just really convoluted because math is weird and, and very difficult to understand. Well, let me stick this in your pipe for you to smoke it. They say, Follow-up, Girdle never showed that arithmetic contains contradictions, parentheses, there are even infinite order logic digressions that establish no contradictions. Uh, I mean, you can look at that if you want to, but again, it, the issue is not simple arithmetic. You won't find problems, you won't find problems with this in like lower level math. It's when it gets further and further out in the theory uh, that things begin to become much more unstable in the long run um, in much the same way that we're, when we're talking about like um, the, uh, the uh, laws uh, of gases um, under normal circumstances, the gases do follow these laws, but in extreme circumstances, they behave in a completely different way. Juicy. Wait, to be clear, I, I don't, uh, fuck, I don't want to argue about 
feel like non-math majors arguing about Gödel's incompleteness theorem is crazy. Yeah. Gödel's Gertl, incompleteness theorem, I believe, has to do like fundamental like truths in mathematics. It's not things that are far out there. It's not like when you calculate big numbers or when you reach like the speed of light that all of a sudden Gödel's incompleteness theorem kicks mm-hmm. in. Um, well, that, the, the issue isn't so much big numbers, but it, it, it's it's like the fact that Gödel's found these issues doesn't cause problems for us adding two plus two equals five, even though well, the issues it, are there. But my understanding is that it's that that is the case that that Gödel essentially I don't know about Gödel's second incompleteness theorem, but, I, but I'm fairly certain that for the first incompleteness theorem, essentially what it says is that there exists no consistent set of axioms where that where if you go through all of them, you can prove everything that we would assume to be true about like the natural numbers. So that could literally extend to like two plus two, that, that, that there will never, um, there will always be unprovable truths in that system. And that could exist at a very fundamental nature. I, that's my understanding of it though, but I'm not a math major. And it is entirely possible that I've misunderstood it, but it's just one mm-hmm. of three examples. And, and I'll also say that even if all three of my examples are wrong, that I was using them to prove essentially that be, that human created systems are fallible and that uh, and I think what we can all agree on is that there is nothing under the sun that is perfect perfection is not a property within physical reality unless you believe in magic so it wouldn't even necessarily need to be true for my argument to be true it would just be a bit embarrassing juicy this next one Woody thanks for your super sticker glad you love the show Gannon Truman says Question for both. It seems to me that something like the moral landscape by Sam Harris would bridge the gap between both of you. Thoughts? In a weird way, it kind of would. I have an instant distaste for Sam Harris um, because of a number of things that he said uh, with regard to to Muslims and some hypotheticals he's entertained. Um, I, and I also kind of have a bit of a problem with what the, he has he started to, um, you know, do meditation and experiment in Buddhism. And I think that's really great, but he's taken a very specific and in my opinion, toxic Western attitude and and infused it. So I, I, it possibly could help us bridge the gap because I do think that there are some good things that Sam Harris has to say. Um, and I think that it does, I see exactly what you're getting at and why you'd think that, but also like, I just, I just instinctively bristle at the mention of Sam Harris. Destiny, do you have a, um, my applied positions would actually be almost identical to Sam Harris's. I imagine if we disagree on something, it's going to be on an empirical matter of fact. The only reason why I don't like Sam Harris is because I believe that his solution, uh, his claiming that he solved the is ought gap is just really stupid. Um, I, 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 vanity. I am an anti-realist in regards to like any like absolute moral truth or whatever. I don't believe that that can be established. Um, I like the way that I address this is I literally just say like, uh, like, <clears throat> I'll say like fuck meta ethics. I don't waste my time there, and I'll just make like some very basic assumptions, and then I'll move on. And if somebody ever challenges me, and they're like, "Well, have you solved the Izod gap? Like, can you really truly compel me to these statements?" Then I'll say like, "No, not really. Like, I'm just going to make a few baseline assumptions to get my system off the ground. We're going to move from there, and I'm not going to pretend that I've like bridged some Izod gap, which is what I think Sam Harris tries to do. Sam Harris is a really good conversation with Sean Carroll, where Sean Carroll tries for like 30 minutes to just get him to admit like. 
Sam, you haven't solved the assault gat. Fucking move on, okay? Normative ethics and applied ethics are way more entertaining than this shit that you're trying, that you claim that you figured out. You haven't figured it out, just move on. Um, Harris does not have the prerequisite background. He does not have the any engagement with the academic literature. For him to claim that he's like just solved this age-old problem of thousands of years in ethics is just really cringe, in my opinion. I, so yeah. that yeah. So uh, kind of like applied Molyneux with um Yeah, that guy, well, that guy's on a whole other level crazy. But yeah, me, <laughs> Sam Harris and me, I imagine, depending on the information we possess, would have very similar applied positions. Um He's just going to make much stronger claims about the truthfulness of his morality than, than I will about mine. Gotcha. And Gannon Truman says, question for both. It seems to me, no, oh, we got that. Bilda Bonker uh, says, I think I've watched two to three debates. Uh, here's my taxes paid. Thanks for your support. Turbo says, bring out the pizza destiny. Intimidate him. <laughs> Thank the you, pizza Mark was not about intimidation. The pizza was about distraction, which people do. Go watch Donald Trump debate Hillary Clinton, though I don't think Destiny uh, did that. Mark Reed, thanks for your question. Says, Destiny, if someone spikes a drink with a synthetic harmless drug that causes euphoria and maximizes their happiness, does that make that action moral? Um, fuck, say that one more time. If someone spiked a drink with a synthetic harmless drug that causes euphoria and maximizes their happiness, does that make the action of spiking moral? Hmm. Um, if somebody, and we, um, so we would have to assume that this means absolutely no negative consequences. Um, so the conflict I have is that in one sense, you are compelling somebody to do something that they didn't choose, um, which I think is kind of a violation of, like you are maximizing your existence as having some level of autonomy over your life. Um, I would say that if there isn't some pre-existing agreement to do that, I, I think that that decision wouldn't be ethical. I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can force that onto somebody, even if it would necessarily result in a better outcome um, because that person hasn't consented to that action. And I don't think that um, other people doing things to you that you don't consent to necessarily will always maximize your experience. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mark Reed, for that one. And thanks, Sigma Any, who asks, Stephen, trolley problem, would you flip the lever or no? What would you do and what ought I do? Um, in the trolley problem, if you can flip one lever, um, if, if five people are going to die and then you flip a lever and you kill one. Um, oh, man, it's been a long time since I've actually engaged with this problem. And I don't, I don't offhand. Um, it depends on, how you, depends on how you universalize the concept in society. I would say that I, I believe that the answer that I would come on myself to is that you ought to pull the lever to um, kill one and save the five in, in that circumstance. Gotcha. And James, yeah. love. I, I would, hang on. Can I, can I just throw in on that? Cause I, I love the trolley problem. Sure. Um, so I agree with, with destiny on this. Um, you should flip the lever if those are the only two choices that you have. However, um, the, the other answer that was uh, made pretty famous uh, by um, uh, by the good place is um, the way you solve the trolley problem is you throw yourself under the tracks and derail the train, saving all six. Ooh, juicy. And Mark Reed, I was, I was expecting something terrible, but that was actually kind of, <laughs> Oh, that's actually, I like it. Mark Reed. Thanks for your, uh, let's see. Or James Labrado. Sorry. said, if people are weaponizing compassion, that doesn't somehow mean that compassion itself isn't part of what it means to be a moral person it's not mm -hmm. possible for someone to be compassionately immoral quote unquote it's a good point 
Yeah, I mean, I totally disagree. There's been plenty of compassionate people throughout history that have been immoral. There's been a lot of people driven by religion, driven by racism, driven by bigotry that have been like relatively good and compassionate people in all senses of the words, but they have some corrupt ideology that just leads them down to making like bad decisions. Like I'm but sure there were at least- Is that because of the compassion or in spite of the compassion? Uh, it could be because of the compassion. I'm sure that there are some people that legitimately thought that they were building a better, stronger Germany while they were executing the Jewish people. Yeah, but again, that's not compassion that you're. It's not compassion because to, you disagree like, with it. But it, yeah. to, I'm sure, to some of those people, they absolutely experienced compassion. Compassion is highly subjective. Can you? I'm define, sure that, Can you define what you mean by compassion? By the way, because the, the definition I'm getting just seems to be a little fuzzy from the way I think of it. Um, sure. So my understanding of compassion is going to be relating to another person's experience and then understanding that they might have some level of suffering and then trying to alleviate said suffering. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's not what I would, that's what happens like often with, when someone is feeling compassion, but that's not actually what I would define compassion as. So we, we've actually been arguing about a word that we're defining two different ways. Next up. Thank you. Wait, wait, wait. Well, how do you define yeah. compassion? I have to hear that out. I would define compassion as the act of seeing the world through someone else's eyes and feeling what they feel. Um, well, how so, is that different meaningfully from what I just said? Um, well, you specifically defined it like more or less as taking an action based upon, um, uh, you, you kind of put it in the realm of action, that taking an action based upon emotional feelings you have towards a person, as opposed to, understanding them and understanding where they are, where they are and where they're coming from, um, feeling connected to them because of that understanding. So, and this was what was strange when you were talking about somebody like having a co compassion for a black person who obviously seems to think that they are inferior to white people. Like, What's the difference? What do you have? Do you yeah. recognize the difference between compassion and empathy? Um, I think empathy leads to compassion. Um, so that there's a different empathy is kind of the ability to see the world from somebody else's perspective. Okay. But I agree with what you said, but empathy yeah. leads to compassion, but your definition of compassion is more or less what I would call empathy. And then I would say that that definition of empathy leads to my definition of compassion. So yeah, empathy I, is I would the say light. you can have empathy without compassion though. For instance, if you're a, so if you're a sociopath, you can be empathetic in the sense that like you can see the world through somebody else's eyes and figure out the best way to manipulate them. Um, it's, it's the difference between understanding and then the connection between you and them that occurs because of that understanding. Okay. This one coming in from Will Stewart. By the way, I want to remind you folks, both of our guests are linked in the description. Highly encourage you to check out those links. We really do appreciate our guests. Will Stewart And says, also, again, as far as compassion goes, please, 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 if you've got anything, even a dollar or a share, it, they're a long way. Uh, my friend's sister who, who needs the heart surgery, they're a long way away from um, their $75,000 goal. Um, anything you guys can do would, would be make such a huge difference for them and their family. So please, thank you. You got it. Thanks, Brenton. And thank you, Will Stewart, for your question, which is, Brenton, can you demonstrate how your morals based on compassion deal with a man who breaks into your house to steal food for his family and then kills yours in the process? Why is your family, why is your family do more compassion than his is? Um, okay, so... If someone breaks into my house, I'm going to be 
first of all, I would hope that it doesn't escalate to the point where he's killing my family just to steal some food. And in fact, if the guy knocks on my door and says, I need food, can you please help me? I'm just going to give him food. Um, but let's assume that he breaks in, he wants food, he inadvertently kills my family, or maybe he kills my family uh, he, for whatever reason. Like, he, I, in that situation, would be compromised by bias, and my ability to feel compassion for him would be thrown completely out the window because of my duty to my family. So I might... Uh, act in a completely different way than I would normally say is ethical. And we see this all the time in like in fiction and in like great tragedies and stuff. It's, it's when a person um, has some horrible circumstances befall them that then compromise them. It's also the reason why we don't allow people who were mugged to sit on the trial uh, to sit in like on the jury of the person that they're that are mugged you can't make that decision so m you know i would say that in the event that something like that happened i would hope that uh my compassion both for my family and his would supersede any kind of driving revenge that might be instinctively uh coursing through my body but i would not hold myself uh, accountable necessarily for that intense instinctual desire for revenge, because again, that's also part of being human. So, you know, if society needs to hold me back and restrain me from taking revenge, I would say if I were in my right mind, which I cannot be in that situation, it is right that I not be allowed to go and attack that person or torture him or kill his family. We, we have systems in place to deal with this because those who are wronged cannot be judged, jury, and executioner. Uh, and we've, we've known this for, for hundreds of years at least. Gosh. Wait, wait, what was, it, what was the question to that? It was... Yeah, it was kind of phrased a little like anybody ever want oh, yes. to look more like. <laughs> I do it... Uh... Oh, that's, they said, Brenton, can you demonstrate how your morals based on compassion deal with a man who breaks into your house to steal food for his family and kills your family in the process? Why is your family do more compassion than his is? Oh, yeah. So, okay. So I guess my answer in that situation would be if somebody's trying to break onto your property, you would never be compelled to submit yourself to whatever their desires are. That if they've put themselves in an aggressive situation against you, you, you don't have the burden to suffer whatever aggression they deem necessary for their own existence. So you'd have the right to defend your property, your family, whatever way you see fit. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that you have the right to it. Um, the only more that I can kind of add to this is... <sighs> I think that as far as my moral system would go, both families are due equal compassion um, in that situation. One is not due more than the other, though my duty as the father in that situation is primarily to my family and uh, not to the guy or his family. Um, I, I would also say that um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, what Nietzsche and Daishonin said uh, when he thought he was going to be executed, um, where he said, you know, in, in, because ultimately from a Buddhist sense, I am the guy breaking into the house and I'm my family and I'm his family and I'm myself. So he said, um, essentially, you know, if, if even if I am to die here, 
I have been killed thousands and millions of times before I've been, I've had my family destroyed, but never before have I had the chance to die for the Lotus Sutra. Um, so what I would say is as far as the moral system goes with that, yeah, they're, they're owed equal compassion, but um, I in particular cannot be um, held to the same standards that uh, an outside observer would be held to simply because I'm involved. Gotcha. And James Lebrano asks, Hmm, is doing whatever you need to keep yourself safe the same thing as doing the right thing? In theory, the right thing is right no matter what someone does to me. If killing is wrong, it is never the right thing. I think that'd be. I mean, I think that you have a right to defend your autonomy from any other like thing. I, I don't think that you ever are morally compelled submit yourself to somebody else's aggressions because I would never want to be in a situation where I am morally compelled to submit myself to somebody else's aggressions. Gotcha. It makes me think this is actually kind of interesting because there's a, so in the Lotus Sutra or no, this isn't the Lotus Sutra. It's a different one. Um, there's a story where the Buddha finds a starving lioness and um, literally uh, offers to feed himself to her and her cubs and um, the lioness is so starving at this point that he cannot actually, um, she won't eat him. So he literally pulls his own flesh out and feeds it to her. Uh, and he dies, presumably, and the family of lions lives. And uh, the story ends with each one of those lions uh, being reincarnated as apostles of the Buddha in the, in the next life, um, sort of showing the interconnectedness of life. I don't think that this story literally happened, but uh, it is to illustrate um, essentially one that you actually can't die um, and two, uh, at least not permanently, uh, and two, that um, there is a lack of attachment to the, that a lack of attachment to the body can actually result in very good things in the long run. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from General Balsack says, isn't Destiny, isn't your example of the commune and the apple essentially an argument against illegal immigration? Mm, no, not, not generally. I mean, I would be opposed if somebody were to show up in some area and just start stealing resources, but I don't think that that's generally how it goes. I think usually when people illegally immigrate to the United States, it's usually because they're coming to work. Um, it's generally not, it's not impossible, but it's generally pretty difficult to get on social benefits if you come as an illegal immigrant, because oftentimes you don't have a legitimate social security number. So even if you come and work as an illegal immigrant, you'll pay into social security that you'll never get out. Um, and then same thing, like if you're being, um, you know, like if you're being paid under the table, oftentimes your wages are being shorted by quite a bit. Um, I think generally, I think generally as illegals, um, I think you're usually more exploited than you are exploiting the country that you go to. Although obviously there can be examples of that working in different ways on both sides. But in, in general, I think it's a little bit too naive an analysis to say that, look, oh, an illegal immigrant just goes and exploits resources in an area, you know? Um, the, the business owner that hires an illegal immigrant, they're not being exploited. Oftentimes they're saving money on labor. And a customer that shops at some firm that's paying, you know, less to labor is probably saving a little bit of money on their goods and services. So a customer of that particular area also doesn't feel like they're being hurt by an illegal immigrant. Um, 
But then, you know, some labor, a native worker that maybe doesn't get a job or has downward pressure on their wages, they might feel like they're a bit of a victim of an illegal immigrant or, you know, like the fiscal system of any given area that, you know, transfers a little bit more out than it gets back in. They might, it's, it's complicated. I'm sorry, that was kind of an unsatisfying answer. I can conceive of ways in which an illegal immigrant could just be a drain on some system that they go to. That's entirely possible. But in practice, at least in the United States of America, we don't really have a welfare system or a social safety net so big that you can just come over and take advantage of it like that. I would say in general, the social safety nets in the United States are pretty shitty and pretty lacking. So there's not much to, to go on there. It is possible um, if I'm going to be charitable to this guy, I don't know if this guy is a fucking alt-right or just a conservative. Um, if I'm being charitable, it is possible in places like Sweden that might happen where they take a huge number of refugees or immigrants. Um, and maybe it's possible that those people end up being a drain on the system for at least the first generation by second, third, fourth generation that might um, even out more. But yeah, that's sorry, that was a policy question. No. It's more complicated. I agree um, 150% with most of everything that I heard there. Um, what I'm going to say is a couple things. One, there is no ethical argument that can be given to stop the free movement of peaceful people, and borders are imaginary. They are lines created on the giant ball of rock and water spinning through infinite space by armies and by, uh, you know, essentially glorified monkeys in funny hats. Um, so the... Uh, the idea that cross that simply crossing a border to work or to do something else uh, somehow robs something from someone is absolutely ridiculous. I'll also go on to echo objectively a world without borders would be $75 trillion richer. And in uh, immigration of all kinds overall um, always results, at least in the first world, in economic gain, because the primary thing that you need to drive the economy in the first world, um, once a country is already industrialized, is a growing population. And the best way to reliably grow that population, especially since first world birth rates begin to slow, um, what you need is immigration into that country. Um, because each one of those people who come in, they require services, they are a consumer, and they are a worker. Um, so as a direct result of that, um, they simply contribute much more. So the, I, I, this would be basically as if, uh, if we were to put this back to the analogy with destiny, the it, illegal immigrants would be like if someone snuck in and added 50 apples to destiny's pile um, after, after taking one. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think you can use that as an argument against um, immigration, but people will lie to you about it and try to make you believe that immigrants are coming here to steal your stuff. They're not. They're just people. I think, I, I, to be clear on those two points, you can give ethical arguments against illegal immigration. If illegal immigrants were to come and be a net drain where they live, I think that would be mm -hmm. a decent ethical argument against it, right? If somebody's just moving in and taking from your society, I think that would well, be the, the free, well, the free movement of peaceful people is the issue. I, I well, don't. Why did we say free movement of? Pe are we begging the question? But what is free movement of peaceful people? If you move into an area and you begin taking those resources, that's not peaceful people. That's essentially well, resources. Yeah, people. because if if you come into an area and start stealing, sh but people don't do that. Like, well, what, yeah, but what I'm I think, saying, well, I'm just sorry, the statement that you gave, there can be no ethical, or there is no ethical argument that can be given against the I can think of tons of ethical arguments. No, I said there's no ethical argument that can be made against the free movement of peaceful people. There is an ethical argument you could make, for instance, about stopping an army from marching across Well, but like, even if it's just, if it's a ton of people and they come in and they don't work and they start like leeching off a system or whatever and hurting the natives there, I think you can make an ethical argument against those people being, even if it's free and peaceful, right? 
Well, you just pointed it out. It's not peaceful if they're causing problems for everybody there. Um, I would say that in the event that they come into a society and a large influx of, re of refugees causes a, you know, big problems that actually materially hurts people within that society, you could make an ethical argument against that, but that's not the reality of immigration, legal or illegal, at least gotcha. not in the first world. Okay, and then I would push on the second thing. Borders are imaginary, and then borders are very real. I think that we recognize that there are a lot of activities and behaviors that can stem from, or that are downstream from whatever country you exist in, um, right? So for instance, if I go to apply for a driver's license or try to buy a piece of property, whether or not mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to do that is going to be a function of what border I exist in and what right I have to be there. Certainly. And why is the border there? Um, because it's the way that we've chosen to organize ourselves. And yeah, well, it's, I would say that's what the state has done. But yes, so, so you can say that we have, let's assume, let's take the criticisms of the state and its total, um, you know, uh, unrespectability out. Let's assume that this is simply the society that we have built and we have all agreed to um, operate by these rules those rules are still subjective. The lines are still subjective. It's in- sure, But just because something lines. is subjective doesn't mean that it's not real. I think that's really important to recognize. So yeah, for instance, yeah, I would make the argument that like your head doesn't really exist insofar as that matter is somehow fundamentally separated or different from the rest of your body. But as a human, mm -hmm. I've arbitrarily kind of labeled like there's a person can have a head. Um, are you familiar with, have you heard of Loki's wager? Oh yeah, yeah, with who gets the, yeah, you can't so, take my, you can take my head, but you can't have any part of my neck. Yeah, so then the dwarves or the elves or whatever, they, they're not allowed to execute him and he walks free because they don't know where they can start chopping along the, mm -hmm. uh, the nape of his neck or whatever. Well, he but like, doesn't just walk something... free. Bro Brock the dwarf sews his his mouth shut <laughs> instead. Well, it's but, probably yeah. better than losing his head. But regardless, yeah. um, I, just because something might not have like a strict definition or just because something might be subjective doesn't make it useless and it certainly doesn't make it unreal, I think. I, I mean, it doesn't make it useless and I think borders can be useful. Um, sure. I just uh, thought like I, that, yeah. the statement that borders are imaginary, I think is nonsensical. Like, would you I, say, I would instance, say, would you say they're length? imaginary in the sense borders are imaginary in the sense that all borders that exist within this planet exist within human minds and human customs, as opposed to within reality. If, if, yeah, if, I understand, but I don't think we would say that about any other, like, for instance, using that same definition, would you ever say language is imaginary? Um, language is imaginary. That's a very interesting way of putting at it. Um, I would say that languages, specific languages, are imaginary. The act of communicating with language is, is real and material. Okay. You got it. And jumping to the next one, Nikolai says, Destiny equals beta. Is that a meme, Destiny? Is that something that your, your peeps regularly say? Or is it in reference to the famous debate between you and Jesse Lee Peterson? Yeah. My maybe one of my favorite videos on the internet, folks. If you haven't seen Destiny and Jesse Lee Peterson, so Kelsey Maple, thanks for your question. Says Destiny, if this pure pleasure wine was had by someone else in the world, but you personally never know about that happening, is that a good state of affairs at all? I mean, it is for the person experiencing it, right? But I would have no knowledge of it, so it may as well not exist to me. You got. I, I just like to add on to the to the previous one. Somebody also took um, part of Destiny's conversation and like animated it like it's South Park. It's freaking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check it out. And Robert, let's see. Thanks for your last minute question. Said there are systems that are prob provably both consistent and complete. 
geometry. Girdle is about specific, specifically arithmetic and a technicality that arithmetic itself can't establish its own consistency. Yeah, very that was one similar, of his other theorems. Very similar to Turing's halting problem, arithmetic has been proven to have no contradictions, PhD math. Yeah. So again, my point was to show that systems that we take as regularly think of as perfect are simply not perfect. Um, now there may be um, some other systems of math uh, of mathematics that don't have the flaws or the contradictions that have been, um, uh, I guess, uh, identified in such a famous way. I would still say they're probably are flaws and contradictions in just the same sense that you have to use uh, like non-Euclidean geometry to build literally everything, for instance, because Euclidean geometry only applies to geometry like with all, with all, like on a flat surface. So literally all construction uh, it uses non-Euclidean geometry. There's also taxi cab geometry. And the fact that the you have to have these multiple systems means that ultimately they're they're not complete. They're complete in and of themselves as we have defined them. You also can't say that they don't have any um, contradictions or incompleteness because, again, you cannot know what you don't already know. But I would say overall, you know, you would be right in most con by saying that, like, the these systems have been proven to work. Um, I'm making a very specific philosophical point about the nature of reality and using that simply as one of three small examples. And, and again, as I said, I think my statement about reality holds even if all three of my uh, examples are, are, are unfortunately wrong, which I don't think they are. Gotcha. And JG Killian 777 says, can Brenton explain how his moral system led him to take part in Occupy Wall Street? Yes. Oh, thank you. I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, Occupy was really, really interesting because that's putting me back in 2010, um, right around the time that I first started to really identify as an anarchist. And I um, began when I first heard about Occupy, there'd been a lot of socialist protests of the year. And my, I first completely dismissed it where I was like, Oh, another socialist protest. They're not angry enough. I'll, I'll come back later. And um, then I suddenly started to see pictures of my friends at Occupy. And I started to see pictures of my friends getting arrested, uh, like being tricked onto the Brooklyn bridge by the NYPD only to be arrested and, uh, you know, handcuffed and kept in, one of my friends was actually kept in jail for uh, 72 or 76 hours uh, because, with no charges because he um, would not submit to a retinal scan. Um, so, I mean, all in all, I felt that it was very, very important to get down to that movement because something very big was happening that was having large effects on the rest of the country. And I felt that one, um, the movement could benefit from my presence um, in the sense that I was able to articulate things that certain pe other people were not quite as good at. But also I felt that, you know, there's certain watersheds and moments in history where you just kind of look at yourself and realize if I don't do something to make the world a better place right now, I will not be able to face myself in the mirror in uh, in the morning. Um, I think it's very important both for an artist and a, and a human being uh, to live in the world and to when when destiny calls to to do what you can to make the world a better place right now. 
Um, so I, I think that really pushed me to down to Occupy Wall Street. The other thing that pushed me in that direction was uh, the fact that I was really worried that the country was going in a very frightening and authoritarian direction. <laughs> that was before Trump. Um, and I put myself out there to see how the system, how the society would respond to me taking a explicit stance against it. And I, I learned two things with that. I learned, number one, that it's not as bad as I feared, but two, it's way worse than I hoped. <laughs> so um, yeah, that, that's how my moral system led me to occupy, though also that does predate uh, my Buddhism and it does predate a lot of uh, the formation of my current moral ideas. So, so, you know, caveat on that. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Ice JJ365 says, Ask Destiny what the alternative is to the society that we are forced into. Um, I don't know. You could go run and live in the forest, or you could go mm. retreat to another country, live in an island. Um, it seems really hard to imagine doing either of those things. I mean, I guess there's a lot of free space in the United States if you really wanted to. Um, but regardless of there being any alternative or not, you remaining in some society that has some set of agreements that you choose not to abide to is the equivalent of you stealing from that society, and they have a right to do with you as they would punish any thief. I'm going to point out, um, you actually can't live, run off and live in the forest. Um, of course, you did it. Yeah, but also he still had to obey a number of societal laws and rules to get in. He, he Becoming a hermit within a society does not remove you from that society, nor does it remove you from uh, the society's jurisdiction. Not completely, Similarly, but it'll get rid of a lot of those restrictions, assuming you like don't like kill anybody or invade any like inhabited society. You could probably live in the wilderness pretty off the grid for quite a while and be decently safe about it. You, you, you could live in the wilderness off the grid for a while and be decently safe Side assuming note. one that you don't get sick um All assuming right. another that the government doesn't come knocking well, if you get if you don't get deed. sick that's but that's on you that's a consequence of your decision to live completely off the grid you don't have um, a right to I, any society's resources if you decide to remove yourself from such society and that includes i mean I, I i would kind of disagree and that i think we have we do have a, a good question for you brenton you might like this oh. one i hate to interrupt okay. but just because <laughs> sorry what do you get? joshua alec asks Compassion must be more than just seeing through another's eyes. A sadist sees the pain of others feel and therefore causes pain. Is that compassion? Okay, so this is the, the whole sadist masochist thing. Um, the reason people move in like uh, develop specific kinks with regard to the either the application of pain or the um, experience of pain is that what's happened is, is that when humans reach a heightened state, there is often a confusion of, is this pleasure or is this pain that I am feeling? And so the, oftentimes like in the mind of a masochist, it is the confusion of pain with the uh, confusion of their orgasm. Similarly, like with a sadist, it is uh, usually re related to some sort of anxiety that is relieved by inflicting pain on someone else. Um, and a, or a particular itch that's scratched. So neither of those have anything at all to do with compassion. Um, and they, they don't have to do with empathy. And people who involve themselves in sadomasochism still are able to feel compassion and empathy outside of the realm of this particular kink that they have. So in, in a, it's not like, because people will use like, what about a sadist or what about an, uh, a masochist in relation to like, um, 
do onto others what you would have them do onto you. A masochist is not going to look at the uh, at the golden rule and decide that others should be hurt. As a it, it's not it, sadism and masochism is not what you think it is. Gotcha. So yeah, there's that. And Doctor Gonzo trying to put a quarter in Brenton again says, "What is the best amazing memory you have of Occupy?" Oh, geez. Short the, and the... pithy, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say the most amazing memory that I have of Occupy is when uh, me and a buddy um, linked hands. I was wearing a Barack Obama mask. He was wearing a Mitt Romney mask. And we walked through the police line. Um, and the police freaked out because, you know, uh, the presidents are walking down. Long story, I basically got tackled, kneed in the spine, thrown into a motorcycle by a cop. But when they picked me up off the ground after my hands were zip tied, I just remember everybody yelling like, what's your name? And, uh, you, you know, you felt like a freaking rock star. And I, I remember uh, I started chanting just the most radical thing I could think of at the time, which was ah, anti, anti capitalista. And they led me down to the to the paddy wagon. Um, and on the way into the jail, uh, Father Paul, who had marched with Martin Luther King, uh, was coming out of the jail just as I was going in. And I spent like the next uh, several hours in a room with a bunch of hippie activists uh, talking, having some very, very interesting conversations and getting an experience that I'd never, you know, really had before. So I'd say that's the most heightened experience with Occupy. There, there's probably better ones, but, but I think that's the one that I'm going to answer with today. Thank you very much. And last one of the night, thanks for your question. This is a request for you, Destiny, from Ben MC says, can you ask Destiny to play Fortnite Poggers for his fans? They want it so bad. Fuck no. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. I want to say our guests are linked in the description. We highly encourage you to check out their links. We really appreciate you, Destiny and Brenton. It's been a true pleasure. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Absolutely. And please, again, uh, if you can, please give to the um, uh, to the GoFundMe. Uh, like I said, they, they anything you can do to help their family would make such a difference. Absolutely. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Destiny. And thanks, everybody. I'll be back with a post-credit scene in just a moment to share about upcoming debates, which are, which are coming up next week. Have some juicy news. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back. And with that, keep sifting out the reasonable, reasonable from the unreasonable. Be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.